All right, welcome to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today I have uh, with me uh, Guillaume Bignon, who came on the show a while back to take on uh, the the arguments uh, over uh, libertarianism and, and determinism, uh, and we, we kind of dealt with uh, some of the objections to the Calvinist position um, from Tim Stratton, uh, Braxton Hunter, and Leighton Flowers. And so today, uh, we're going to do a part two. Um, and so if you guys have been following this discussion, you'll you'll know that um, Leighton, Tim, and Braxton made a made three videos of, of their own responding to our very large uh, discussion. I think it was close to two hours. Maybe it was over two hours. I'm not sure. Um, but this particular discussion, this interview that I'm going to be conducting with Guillaume, um, presupposes, and you guys know I'm presuppositionalist, right? It presupposes that you have background knowledge of that previous discussion. So we're not going to be defining uh, terms and things like this. This particular interview is going to be based upon the assumption that folks are either familiar with the topic or have already watched the previous videos. And again, if you've been following, if you've already watched the video responses that uh, Braxton, Tim, and Layton have put on uh, their respective uh, social media platforms, uh, most notably YouTube. And so um, Guillaume, Guillaume uh, took the time to uh, go through those videos, uh, those responses, and has now um, uh, was willing to come back on and kind of address those. Now, again, this Revealed Apologetics is focused on apologetics. And of course, I'm a Reformed Christian, I'm a Calvinist, and so I do think these topics kind of uh, spill into, uh, you know, spill into each other. But I don't want this ministry to be focused merely on these topics. And so this is going to be the last response by Guillaume, um, specifically to, you know, this little back and forth that, that's going on here. So, again, we we want to just uh, set forth the disclaimer. We see Braxton, Layton, and Tim as brothers in Christ. Uh, they're friends. I speak to all three of them on uh, a fairly regular basis. They're, they're great guys. Uh, we just have disagreements. And so um, I'm very excited to have someone like Guillaume, who is very knowledgeable in this area, to be a representative of the Calvinist side and to provide some responses to their many, many objections, especially if you guys are familiar with Soteriology 101. Uh, Leighton Flowers uh, spends a significant time um, critiquing the Calvinist position, which uh, Calvinists should welcome. Uh, you know, if we believe our position is correct, then we should be willing to uh, engage uh, some of the uh, criticisms and critiques that are offered. Now, real quick, by way of uh, some announcements, you guys uh, hopefully caught my last interview with Pastor Doug Wilson, where we talked about the biblical foundation of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, I did have Jeff Durbin for the 29th, but unfortunately, I had to reschedule. So I am uh, connecting with him behind the scenes to reschedule that. Um, please stay tuned for the updates uh, with Jeff Durbin, because the focus I want to I want to have there is um, how does presuppositional apologetics apply to um, different religions? So when we talk about um, you know the use of the transcendental argument for the Christian worldview, right? Um, how does this look when we're applying it to things like Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, or any other non-Christian position? So please stay tuned for uh, for that discussion. I'll definitely let you guys know when that is put on the calendar. On uh, May 9th, I have Dr. James Anderson from Reformed Theological Seminary to talk about the nature of transcendental arguments. Um, it is a common uh, complaint 
of non-presuppositionalists uh, against the presuppositionalists that presuppositionalists say all sorts of things, but they never state the argument. And so with Dr. James Anderson, I want to uh, uh, talk to him about how do we actually state the transcendental argument? What is its structure? What are we trying to accomplish when we engage in that form of argumentation? On May 12th, I have Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, he's going to be on to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And hopefully, if this date is still good, um, Dr. Douglas Gruthius, the author of Christian Apologetics, I don't have the book with me, but it's a giant textbook uh, on apologetics. And so hopefully, uh, none of these will fall through, and we'll have a very, very awesome lineup um, very, in very close proximity. I, I, it's just it's God's providence, right? Uh, all these guys happen to respond in this close uh, time, and so, um, you know, we're able to have these great uh, interviews, um, you know these past couple of weeks. So without further ado, I want to uh, welcome Guillaume. Uh, again, I always introduce uh, Guillaume as the French Calvinist philosopher. Um, and if you know who he is, uh, then yes, this is, you know, of course, you know, he's French. And if you don't know who he is, you will automatically know he's French when he opens his mouth. So Guillaume, why don't you say hi to everybody um, and tell folks just very briefly a little bit about yourself and then we'll just pick off pick up where we left off. Hey, uh, it's good to be with you, uh, Eli. So a uh, little bit about myself. Uh, well, I'm a French Calvinist philosopher. Uh, all of that is true. I'm actually, uh, during the day, I'm a computer scientist and I work uh, in finance uh, in on uh, Wall Street. Um, and uh, at night, I have a, a wife and four kids and a fifth on the way. And uh, also I uh, do adjunct teaching uh, in philosophy at uh, Caldwell University. So that's some of the responsibilities I have and try to juggle well. I, I like how you mentioned your job and then you said at night I have a wife and kids. <laughs> so they're yes. not your wife and kids during the well, day. Well, during the quarantine, day. they are very much. During the uh, lockdown, I have, I'm very much reminded I have kids during the day when I work, but uh, right. normal times are not so much. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, uh, again, uh, folks, um, I'm just going to let you know, again, we're going to hit the ground running with this, and we're just going to jump into uh, the responses made by Leighton, um, Braxton, and Tim Stratton of Freethinking Ministries. Of course, uh, Braxton Hunter is over at Trinity Radio, and Leighton Flowers is over at Soteriology 101. Um, so we're just going to hit the ground running with this. So let's um, begin with uh, Leighton's video response. Uh, and most of the video is really on your sketch of the case you made for uh, determinism. So uh, how would you respond to what Leighton says? And of course, the audience, assuming that they have watched it or they will watch it in the near future, uh, how would you address uh, Leighton's um, words on your case for determinism? Yeah, so so the most of the video was on the sketch uh, that I gave for the case for determinism, mm -hmm. and it wasn't really part of our actual presentation in the interview, but I gave that sketch as a brief response uh, to Leighton in the Q&A. Uh, Leighton had asked uh, on the computer, uh, uh, where the Bible supports determinism. And uh, in response, I quickly listed several points. Uh, I said that determinism is supported by texts, uh, teaching God's providential control of all things, including evil, uh, that it's supported by biblical teaching on election and predestination, um, that it's supported by two philosophical arguments that have 
biblical premises. Uh, so there was the argument from Luther, uh, the argument based on original sin, and uh, the argument by Jonathan Edwards, uh, the argument from divine impeccability. So they are both philosophical arguments which have biblical premises. And then there was my cheeky claim that uh, Paul anticipates the two main objections to determinism uh, right there in Romans 9. Uh, why, is, why, do you, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? And is there unrighteousness in God? So these are kind of the sketch I gave for a case for determinism. Yeah. Now, now in the the video response, I, I believe that th all three of them were on the on the the episode. I watched the first one, most of it, a while back when they first uh, uh, you know released it. But uh, I remember uh, Dr. Hunter. Uh, he said in this regard, he says uh, first uh, he says that you presume a lot in your response. You presume an interpretation of election, right? You bring to the table your Calvinistic understanding. You presume an interpretation of predestination and all those other related issues. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I don't really so much presume. It's just that I sketched the line of argumentation. So yes, it would need to be supported, uh, which I obviously didn't do or try to do in the tiny segment of the Q&A that they respond to. But I don't think it would be presuming. It's just that it would need to be argued, in fact, yes. The debate hasn't really been settled on those fronts. Okay, but, but they say that providential control doesn't logically entail determinism and that predestination and election don't logically entail determinism. So, you know, that a lot of people think that there's a, a necessary connection there. Other people try to point out, well, there isn't a necessary connection. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, I don't say that each of these items logically entails determinism. I suggested briefly that there are evidence for it. Uh, so the Calvinist can mount a good cumulative case based on all those biblical elements. Um, so they say, I presume my position is a given, but then they correctly anticipate exactly what I'll respond in the video. They say, Guillaume may say that all of this would need to be debated. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, okay. So I, I don't presume it after all, it's just that it would need to be debated. Now, a couple of those items do logically entail compatibilism. Uh, the arguments from Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards. Um, so let's see how they respond to my sketch of these arguments in their video. Okay, well, let, well let's take a look at the argument from, from Luther. Le Leighton says, um, the argument from Luther does in fact, uh, it says, does the fact that we ought to perfectly obey the law, but cannot obey the law, refute libertarianism? And they say no. And Braxton says, you assume a view of original sin that's not held by all orthodox believers. Yeah, so I don't know which view of original sin he thinks that the argument needs uh, and which view he himself affirms uh, to see if he can escape the argument. But all the argument needs is that we'd be incapable of living a sinless life. Um, so does his view of original sin not at least entail that we can't live a sinless life? Uh, I think Leighton's view does. I think he grants that we con that we cannot live a sinless life yeah. uh, in the way that he asked the question, right? Does the fact that we can't live a sinless life entail that? Uh, so it's the uh, dilemma for the proponent of the principle of alternate possibilities. That's this so-called principle that says that uh, if uh, that moral responsibility requires the categorical ability to do otherwise. Mm. Uh, so if you affirm that, you have a, a dilemma fa facing you because we either have the categorical ability to live a fully sinless life or mm. we don't. If we do, it denies original sin and affirms a Pelagian ability to work ourselves to a non-guilty verdict at the final judgment. Okay. But if we don't have the ability and moral responsibility requires the ability, 
then we cannot be blamed for sinning at all. And so you result in universalism. So it's kind of pick your poison here, uh, depending on whether you affirm we have the ability or we don't. Either we have the ability and you're in, you fall into Pelagianism, or you deny that we have it, but then you result in universalism because we cannot be blamed for it. So uh, b before finishing their answer to the, uh, to the argument from Luther in that video, they take a break and they criticize the idea that the conditional ability is sufficient for moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. And they raise multiple manipulation arguments. So, but we'll deal with those a bit later on. Um, and then they come back to Luther's argument. Okay, but, uh, Leighton offers this response though. He says, anytime that I'm faced with a choice, even as a lost person, I can lie or I cannot lie. Logically, it's possible for him to tell the truth. What's not feasible is that a sinful lost person in a fallen state would feasibly always choose to do the right thing. But in any given situation, I think we can say, yeah, it's logically possible for him to choose the right thing in any given situation. How would you respond to that? Yeah, no. So that, that response is actually logically incoherent. Okay. Um, so if you have the ability to avoid sinning on any given uh, situation, on any one situation, mm -hmm. um, that successfully aggregates to your ability to avoid sin for your entire life. Uh, I show this in my book with an argument by recurrence. So you do it for once and you show that if you have it for one, then it's true for the next one and so on. And you move on through recurrence through the entirety of your life. And that argument is sound. And so it shows that uh, it aggregates successfully. Um, my friend W. Paul Franks, uh, who is himself a Molinist, proves the same thing, uh, namely that you cannot just say, we cannot live a sinless life, but we can avoid every individual sin. He shows it with a, a slightly different route, um, but basically reaches the same conclusion. You, we cannot say that we can avoid any given sin and yet somehow not be able to live a sinless life. So the one demonstrably entails the other. Well, Leighton continues. He says, uh, the point of the scriptures is that even if he does do all the right things all the time, it's not sufficient to earn or merit his salvation. Even a baby who's uh, never had a moral choice to make. They still need Jesus. They still need the blood of Christ because guess what? No one gets to heaven through just their natural abilities or or their their merit. That's what Leighton. That's what Leighton said. Yeah, it's a bit surprising. So we're looking at a person who now successfully lives their entire life without ever sinning, and is saying that this person would still not be saved. I mean, that sounds strange to me. Um, if you never do wrong, you don't need to earn salvation. You don't need salvation, right? Um, you don't need to be saved from the wrath of God, which you don't deserve. Uh, Christian salvation is the forgiveness of sin. So death is the wages of sin. If you don't sin, you don't need forgiveness. So it seems, um, I don't know how he would reconcile those two, but it seems to me like if you are fully sinless and live a fully sinless life, you don't need to earn anything because you don't need salvation. You don't need forgiveness. You don't need redemption if you are actually sinless. But, but, but he says that the law has never been the means of salvation. It's a tutor to point you to Christ. Um, yeah, so that's uh, in the scriptures, obviously. Uh, and the way that the law points you to Christ is by revealing your sin. Right? Paul says, I would not have known my sin unless the law hadn't taught me uh, this is what you ought to do. So we're told in Romans 7 that... Uh, the law points you to Christ by revealing your sin. But if someone never sins, then the law doesn't work like that for him because the law would tell him he's actually righteous. He's passing all with flying colors. So it's not pointing you to Christ if you are in fact sinless. 
but but then he says the difference between heaven and hell isn't whether you sin, right? Since we all sin, rather he says it's whether you have faith. Yeah, I meant to that. Uh, I obviously okay. affirm that, and he's the one who says it doesn't have to be like that, okay. because he's saying that a fallen child of Adam is capable of living a sinless life, and therefore making it false that we all sin. Well, but but then he says the Calvinist, uh, you know, accuses us. The Calvinist wants to say you can't have faith because you can't obey the law. That's the Calvinist uh, Calvinistic leap, he says. And if if we have a chance to talk uh, to Bignon, he says, and then they did have a chance. Okay, uh, but he said he'd want to push uh, push you on this point. So so what do you think? Yeah. So he says the the Calvinist wants to say you can't have faith because you can't obey the law. And no, the the Calvinist doesn't say that. He he says that you don't need the ability to avoid sinning in order to be blameworthy for sinning. And that does follow logically from our inability to live a sinless life, along with our blameworthiness for that failure. So okay. that refutes the principle of alternate possibilities. And from that, compatibilism logically follows. So that's the claim of the Calvinist here. Right. What about this issue of divine impeccability? Tim yeah. said there's um, nothing causally determining God, even if it's true that he cannot sin. Yeah, so here we've moved on to the uh, argument by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and it's based on the fact that God is impeccable. Uh, he's, he could not sin, and yet he remains praiseworthy. So we see that uh, praiseworthiness does not require the categorical ability to do otherwise than acting righteously. And so um, Strassen said, there's nothing causally determining God, even if it's true that he cannot sin. Uh, and I'm fine with that. I'm, not, I'm just saying God refutes the uh, principle of alternate possibilities. Yeah. I don't need to convince you that God is determined, only that he cannot sin, and yet he is praiseworthy for acting righteously. Right. So he has the ability. He doesn't have the ability to do other than what he does, which is good. Yet he's worthy of praise. Yes, that's right. He, so and it's not just just of the um, inability to do other than what he does, because that, yes, we might interpret that to mean he's determined and we don't need to debate that just yet. Uh, here, all I need is to say that he does not have the ability to um, act unrighteously. So he always acts righteously and does not have the categorical ability to do anything less than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if that's true, then that refutes the principle of alternate possibilities. Okay, but then Tim goes on to say that the problem is not all Christians are going to agree with what, what you say here, right? It's an assumption. You need, you need an argument. You can't just assume it, right? Yeah, but I mean, I just gave the argument, right? God cannot fail to act righteously. God is praiseworthy for acting righteously. Therefore, moral responsibility doesn't require the ability to do otherwise. So um, he needs to tell us which premise he disagrees with. Oh, well, it's apparently the first premise, right? Because he then approves of a quote he attributes to Dallas Willard, right? Well, of course, God can sin, but why would he want to, right? Yes, so that's what the the quoted Dallas Willard is saying this, and okay. I, I thought this is pretty amazing because um, to salvage the principle of alternate possibilities in the case of God, uh, he's now using the conditional sense of ability. Okay. Uh, because first, to avoid my argument, you would need to maintain God's categorical ability to sin, so it doesn't work. But also, I should point out in those three videos, they spend all their energy arguing that the conditional ability doesn't work. And it's not worth the name ability if you categorically can't do it. Okay. And then here they use it as perfectly meaningful about God. Right? Well, of course, I agree. It's meaningful to say God or Jesus could sin if he wanted to, but it remains that he doesn't have the categorical ability to do otherwise. And yet he's praiseworthy. So there goes the principle of alternate possibilities. And well, the, the claim that he's making here, the quote is literally 
I mean, it's, it's obviously the conditional ability, right? He, he could sin, but only if he wanted to. But in fact, he cannot possibly want to. Therefore, there's no categorical ability to sin here. What he says, uh, he doesn't understand what it would mean for God to sin since sin is missing the mark of God's standard. Yeah, great. So we agree that it's incoherent to say that God sins. And that's my point. There okay. is no possible world in which God sins. Well, God must have libertarian freedom. There was nothing external to God to determine him. That's the next claim, yeah. Um, so, of course, if God is determined, uh, it's from his own nature. It's okay. not from the outside. So I agree it's a difference with determined humans uh, who are determined by someone outside of them, right? So uh, if humans and God are determined, if, then there's still a big difference in that humans would be determined by God, but God would be determined only from the inside, uh, from his inner nature, his necessarily good nature, uh, and not by something or someone outside himself. But just because God isn't determined from the outside, it doesn't follow that he has libertarian free will. Because if he's determined from the inside, it's still determined and praiseworthy. So okay. compatibilism uh, follows and libertarianism requires compatibilism to be false. So if God is determined from the inside, that's not libertarian freedom because that's compatible with determinism. Okay. Well, Braxton uh, then tries to affirm the principle of alternate possibilities for God by saying God can pick among two good things, right? So that seems to be uh, the pap, as you would call it, right? Yeah, so that's a that's a, a pretty standard move. Um, and what my response is that it's not relevant to my argument. Uh, I say that God is praiseworthy for acting righteously as opposed to sinning, right? Okay. And and I'm claiming that there's no praise in the picking of a good over an equal good if there are no other options, right? If you have two options that are both good, but there's nothing else that's available, then there's no praise in picking one over the other. But the reason that it's praiseworthy when he picks a good, it's because it's in opposition to picking something bad, even though he doesn't have the categorical ability to pick something bad. Okay. But Tim says, if you can show there's two options for God, then it seems that he would have libertarian free will. Um, yeah, but that's also irrelevant here because I use God's inability to act unrighteously as a premise to refute the principle of alternate possibilities. Okay. I don't argue here that God is fully determined and never has two options categorically accessible. My argument leaves that question open. So even if God has sometimes two options categorically available, they don't need to be those that I use for my immediate argument. Okay. All right, well, let's let's turn to Romans 9 then, okay? Uh, they turn to your cheeky claim, <laughs> okay, about Romans 9 anticipating the main two objections against Calvinism. And people who are familiar with Romans 9 would imagine what, uh, what that is about. So how would you engage them on Romans 9? Yeah, so Leighton then tries to offer a plausible account for why Paul would anticipate uh, these objections. You know, is there unrighteousness in God? And why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And uh, that's fine. Uh, we don't need to turn that part into a debate. I do think that Romans 9 supports the determinist view. But again, I didn't really support the claim in our interview. So there wasn't much for him to respond to. Um, I said it's kind of a cheeky remark that, he, that the main argument uh, against Calvinism sure sound a lot like those anticipated by Paul when he teaches on God's sovereign choice of election in Romans 9. But that's all. I mean, it's fun. It made for a catchy book title, right? My book called Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. Um, but at this point, we still haven't really touched uh, my actual responses to his debate on Calvinism. Um, right. 
By, by the way, excusing sinners and blaming God can be purchased at Amazon and the bookstores near you. Actually, don't go to the bookstore, but you could order it online. Uh, well, well, they eventually get to to that point, right? So, so let's let's uh, deal with the issue of of uh, or the question rather: Does choice entail indeterminism? Right? There's this big hullabaloo about well, choice seems to entail. Okay, things aren't determined in the way that the Calvinist uh, thinks it is. Yeah, so that, that was part of um, that was part of the initial uh, argument that Leighton had brought in his uh, debate that we responded to. Uh, um, so I, I responded that choice doesn't entail indeterminism. Uh, you still make choices on determinism. Okay. Um, so do you want to read uh, Leighton's reply? Well, he says, but who's determining your choices? It's not what you have decided. Yeah. So, so, so in other words. If God determines, it's not really you choosing, right? Yeah, that's the claim that's made here. Uh, right. So let, let me answer that question. Uh, who's determining your choices? Answer, it's God. Uh, but of course, it doesn't follow that it's not what you have decided. Uh, okay. they, they make that claim a number of times in this video and in that of Tim Stratton, I believe. Um, so it's important to address it here, but I, I need to point out this. If God causes you to choose X, you didn't choose X. That's their claim. But that claim isn't just question begging, uh, because I disagree with the, uh, the truth of the, the claim, um, but it's actually self-refuting. Uh, look at the wording of the objection. If God causes you to choose X, it actually logically follows that you choose X. I mean, you can tell that they don't like it, and there may be some coherent way of framing an objection somewhere in the neighborhood of what they say, but as they phrase it, the objection is self-refuting. If I cause my pen to fall on the floor, does it follow that my pen didn't fall on the floor? Well, of course not. Uh, not only it doesn't follow that my pen didn't fall, but it does follow that my pen did fall. So if I cause my pen to fall on the floor, my pen falls on the floor. Similarly, if God causes me to choose X, it is not only compatible with my choosing X, it actually logically entails that I chose X. Yeah, but... So, your argument has been determined by God. We hear this all the time. Everything you just said was determined. So, you know, they do this for the point of kind of highlighting it's all irrational anyway, because you've been determined to say everything you just said. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, it has been determined by God, but that's not an argument. I'm aware that God determines all things on determinism. Uh, there's no debate on that. So it's yeah. not very helpful to have them repeat all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, the only one who seems not to know that determinism means all things are determined is Tim Stratton. And we'll see that when we get to his video. Okay. Um, but until we have a successful argument to support that determinism excludes choice or free will, uh, it's pointless to keep hammering that on my view, it's God who determines all things. Yes, he does, and I don't shy away from that. Okay. But then they bring in a text that wasn't mentioned in the original debates, and that's uh, Genesis chapter 4. Okay. Uh, Braxton says, uh, in our debates, we gave some of the same texts, but we gave texts that imply not just that man has choice, but choices in the Bible where it really does seem like libertarian freedom is the type of choice we're talking about. Genesis 4 uh, reads thusly, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Braxton goes on to say, now granted, God didn't say you can do well, but surely the point of the text is this is before the murder has yet taken place. And 
what he's implying to Cain is, yes, your offering wasn't accepted, but you can do well. If you do well, your offering will be accepted. So this has to be understood as a libertarian choice, as um, uh, Braxton says, for the following reasons. If God is saying this to Cain, but God knows that Cain in one sense of could or the other isn't capable of doing, or it's been determined that he won't do it, then at best, God is being deceptive with Cain. And at worst, it's just an outright lie to imply that he could do otherwise, when in fact, he, he obviously can't. Yeah, so here I, I deny that the uh, categorical sense of can is implied uh, in this text. Here. here again, what is explicit is the conditional. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Okay. Uh, it doesn't imply that he can do it all things being just as they are, which is what the categorical ability requires. All things about the person at the moment of choice inside and out must be held in place exactly as they are, and they still can do it. Uh, so it doesn't imply that kind of strong ability here, just the text. Uh, it says you must rule over it, but it doesn't entail you have the categorical ability to rule over it. Because again, the reductio comes back to bite us. We must live a sinless life but it doesn't entail we actually can, all things being equal. Mm -hmm. And if you object further by saying that uh, Cain could complain if God doesn't also grant the antecedent of the conditional, right? If God doesn't also grant the if in if you do well, then you're again literally arguing, why does God find fault for who can resist his will? Uh, I don't think Sounds we should do familiar. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, familiar. Then uh, they spend a bit more time uh, arguing that if you freely choose God, it doesn't mean you're earning your salvation. It doesn't mean you're meriting it, etc. Um, Leighton even says it's the wall Calvinist argument, but I I'm not arguing any of this, so it's not really relevant, and we can skip over that part. But in the debate you were responding to, uh, Leighton said the word choice is all you need, and you don't need a philosophy degree. And you responded, no, obviously it's not all you need. And the Calvinist is fine with the Webster's definition of choice, which Leighton quoted. Uh, Leighton double downs and, and he says the word choice is all you need if determinism isn't injected into the picture. Yeah, so, so what I think is going on here is that he's missing where the burden of proof is. Uh, he's the one, he is the one arguing that choice entails indeterminism. So who's injecting anything into the word? Not me. I don't need to inject determinism. He needs to extract indeterminism. And I say, good luck doing that out of the mere word choice. Okay. But Leighton continues. He says, the only reason we're, we're having all this vernacular of libertarian freedom of the will and all of this uh, nuance and all this other stuff is because you, you've uh, had people insert determinism and then come up with new definitions of free will that aren't the basic intuitive understanding of what free will is? Um, no, I didn't do that. I, I gave you my definition of free will. It's okay. the control condition for moral responsibility. Uh, it's perfectly meaningful and it should be yours too because it's neutral and uncontroversial. Okay. The real debate then is on whether that is compatible with determinism. Okay. Unless you just want to beg the question entirely by baking your view into the definition, but then if so, then have at it. But I, I don't think you understand how debates work if that's satisfying to you. Okay. Uh, and I think this, this is a, a big deal. A, a lot of people say that Calvinists uh, redefine free will. That this begs the question in favor of the 
other person's yeah. definition. <laughs> yeah, we, we discussed that a little bit, but I mean, to, to bypass that entirely, uh, what I do is I take the fully standard definition of free will. It's the uh, control condition for moral responsibility. You find this in the literature on both sides of the aisle. And once we agree on that, it's being the case, then we can debate whether that is in fact compatible with determinism and all the arguments can then be unfolded. But I don't think you can bake that into the definition. Otherwise, it's not really a meaningful debate. Now, in that discussion that we had the first time, uh, late, later on in the discussion, I asked you if the Bible is underdeterminative um, with regards to this whole issue. And Leighton paused to say, uh, and this is what Leighton says. He says, it's a great question. Thank you, Leighton. And, and makes his point. If you're not trying to draw a philosophical inference, if you're just reading the text, our view is supported. So he thinks that, he thinks that his view is just supported by a bare reading of the text. Yeah, so but that that demand seems to be self-refuting here again, because to claim that your indeterminist view is supported by the text is to draw a philosophical inference. So it's not that he's refusing to draw a philosophical inference and then let the text speak and then it's supporting indeterminism. Okay. To say that it supports indeterminism is to draw a philosophical inference. And if the Bible is underdeterminative, uh, then it calls for neither view. So once more, his own criticism applies directly to his own view. All right, well, Braxton says a good exegete uh, asks who the original audience was, and the original audience wouldn't have understood the distinction between categorical and conditional ability. He sarcastically implies you must believe they'd be sophisticated philosophers. I'm being a little bit snarky, he says. He's, he's admitting that he's being a little snarky, and that, that's fine. Braxton's a great guy, but uh, it's a good point. I mean... When you when you take a look at the original audience, you don't think that they're they're thinking in these categories of conditional and categorical. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so I obviously I don't suggest that the disciples would have done that philosophical work too. Um, all I'm saying is that the text doesn't teach indeterminism because there's a perfectly acceptable sense of ability that mm -hmm. is compatible with determinism. Uh, and remember even they used that sense of ability when they said God had the ability to sin, right? So when they quoted Dallas Willard. So it's not some sort of a hair-splitting device I'm using here, uh, created by a crazy French philosopher. Uh, it's a perfectly common usage of ability. And okay. in, in any case, the mockery cuts both ways, right? Because I can turn this on to their own view and, uh, and could say, well, are we to understand that the original reader would have heard the text and said this? well, then there must be a possible world in which all causally relevant influencing factors are held just as they are, and the outcome of the free choice is different in a way that is inconsistent with theistic determinism. Well, no, of course not. So let's be consistent. Uh, let's not do this with their view, and let's not do this with mine either. Okay. Um, all right, so, so what about this phrase, uh, your will be done? Okay, Leighton said um, on Calvinism, God's will is always done. So it makes little sense to pray your will be done. All this to affirm a so-called divine decree that isn't found in scripture, he says. Yeah, that was the uh, one of the objections. Uh, so I said, uh, let me not address any uh, initial interview. I said, uh, let me not address the question of the decree and not being found in scripture um, mm -hmm. to address the argument. And then Leighton, in his response, interrupted it just at that point to say, but that was the most important part, uh, because his point is that if the decree isn't taught in scripture, we don't need the philosophy. Uh, no, that's not the most important point here. He's in the middle of a philosophical argument based on the Lord's prayer and God's will being done. So I, addressing his philosophical argument, I naturally skipped over the side jab that was not relevant to his own argument on God's will being always done. Uh, so I explained the uh, equivocation on uh, the 
decretive uh, versus prescriptive will of God. Uh, and when and I explained that uh, we pray that God's prescriptions uh, would come to pass. Mm -hmm. And the only will that we say always comes to pass is his ultimate decree, which contains lots of things that do go against his prescription. That was my response to his uh, allegation that uh, somehow praying your will be done is incoherent if God's will is always done. So my distinction is perfectly coherent. So let's see how he responds. Well, uh, here's what they respond. They said, uh, Leighton says sarcastically, uh, once again, of course we know that the fisherman, uh, Peter, who had a third grade level education, probably understood that, right? The decretive will, not the prescriptive will. But by the way, before you even, uh, how, how does he know the education level of, of Peter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, th I think we can grant that, but I, I've already addressed the issue of the philosophical acumen of the reader. Yeah. I don't think we need to presuppose that uh, in order sure, to draw sure. coherent coherent distinctions. Okay. Uh, well, Tim uh, gives a story of when he was a Calvinist. Uh, he was going to pray for his friend's salvation. And when his uh, son asked him to play Xbox instead, uh, he reasoned that if his friend is elect, God will save him anyway. And if he's not, then he won't. So he went and played Xbox. Yeah, and so we agree that this uh, decision uh, is absurd. Uh, so, but I think that's that's nonsense, even on Calvinist premises. Uh, what's important in petitionary prayer, right? You're asking God to do something. What's important here is that God would do things in response to prayer that He wouldn't do if He had if we hadn't prayed. Right? Okay. Let me repeat that. What's important in petitionary prayer is that God does things in response to prayer that he wouldn't do if you hadn't prayed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's compatible with determinism and indeterminism. Sure. And uh, I should point out on Molinism, uh, which is presumably their view, uh, the exact same problem occurs, right? Either God has chosen a feasible world in which your friend is saved, or he hasn't. If he has, then your friend will be saved. If not, your friend will not. So just go play the the Xbox? Um, no, of course not. And all you need and all I need is that God's decision to act is taking into account the fact that we prayed. That, okay. That's all we need. He's doing it in answer to our prayer. God is doing that thing in answer to our prayers such that he wouldn't have done it if we hadn't prayed. And that's what's rescuing the meaningfulness of petitionary prayer. And it's compatible with both of our views. Okay. So, and then the, the first video ends at this point, uh, and I, they did miss uh, my main two points uh, about the Lord's Prayer that, uh, you know, when Jesus says, your will be done, uh, there was two really strong points that were not addressed in their, uh, in at the end of the first response by these uh, three gentlemen. Um, they themselves need to affirm that God has mutually conflicting wills, right? That's a very strong point I, I made, uh, so that that must concede that my distinction is perfectly coherent. Mm -hmm. On their own on their own view, they must admit that God has mutually conflicting will. Now, they don't call it the decretive will because they don't say that God decrees everything. Well, mm -hmm. actually, maybe Stratton says that, but Leighton might not. Uh, I'm not too sure. But in any case, they, no matter how they call it, they do need to say that God has several different kinds of wills that sometimes conflict. And so my, that concedes that my distinction is perfectly coherent. And then they skip altogether the accusation that uh, I made, which is that their argument here, pressing the Calvinists with the Lord's Prayer, is actually self-defeating um, because that, and, and that was really the strongest part of my argument here. Um, I think they were, they are, they were pressed with time, uh, so they didn't, you know, they had to wrap up the video. So I'm not accusing them of trying to dodge anything here. Um, but it's unfortunate because 
it cuts the video cuts right before my bing zinger on this uh, argument uh, i argued this i said if you say god's will isn't always done because liberty and free will leads to states of affairs that god cannot prevent without removing liberty and free will which is really what they're saying right uh, they're, they're accusing the calvinists saying um on your view, God's will is always done because he controls and determines everything. On our view, his will is not always done because there are these things that happen that go against his will because he cannot determine them to be otherwise. So you're looking at those and you're saying he cannot bring about something, but in that prayer, you ask him to do it anyway. So on the libertarian view here, you're saying, Lord, please do what I say you cannot do. <laughs> so forget merely begging the question. That complaint is self-refuting once again. All right. Okay. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that was a very, very uh, interesting. Uh, again, they took a very interesting tact here. We we did our 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 first interview just all in one shot, and so they were more uh, strategic in in making uh, multiple videos, or as you would say, multiple videos. <laughs> Practice on my French accent, um, and so um, I think. We're actually making really good time, I think. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, so that's the first the first video. Let's take a look at Braxton's uh, video. Um, Braxton put out a video again. All three of them have separate videos that can be seen on their on their respective YouTube channels. Uh, so, we're going to turn our attention to uh, Braxton's uh, videos. Uh, just as a complete side note, again, I I, I do like to promote apologetics and um, good resources. Uh, Trinity Radio YouTube channel is an awesome apologetic resource. You definitely want to check that out. Braxton does a great job in um, responding to popular uh, atheist uh, objections to Christianity um, and the existence yeah, of Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you here, but uh, I'm going to lend support to that. I've now come to uh, discover the material of this, uh, these folks, and uh, I've watched a couple of videos from uh, Braxton myself, and I found them thoroughly enjoyable, and so I recommend the resource as well. Uh, you know, obviously, we disagree on the free will question. Uh, we do so charitably, I, I uh, hope, but uh, I do affirm that he produces a lot of really good material, so keep right. doing the good work, brother. It's, it's really good. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, so let's let's turn our attention to Braxton's uh, video. Uh, in Layton's video, there were two big interludes on manipulation arguments, okay, where they uh, criticized your conditional ability to do otherwise. So let's treat them here, uh, since it's it's also where Braxton's uh, show begins. So uh, how would you uh, enter into that? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so so that uh, is precisely the move uh, that I said actually couldn't work against my use of the conditional ability. Um, uh, twice in the uh, interview, I rudely interrupted you, uh, Eli, uh, okay. to, to step out of my way and make it clear that I do not affirm that the conditional ability is sufficient for moral responsibility. Okay. I, I only say that it's necessary and that the categorical ability to do otherwise is not necessary. So if you say it's sufficient, you know, if you say that the conditional uh, ability to do otherwise is sufficient, then you're exposed to manipulation arguments. Right? Okay. Because if, if a mad scientist controls your brain to make you do something, it remains that you could have done otherwise if you had wanted. And I say, I say you're not responsible. So it shows that the conditional ability isn't sufficient. Okay. Uh, so that is what I carefully clarified twice uh, when I interrupted you to really make that strong point. I don't say it's sufficient, 
So you can't use a manipulation argument to criticize my defense of the conditional liability. Mm. But of course, they went ahead and did exactly that repeatedly. They offered just that sort of manipulation argument multiple times throughout the shows. Um, Leighton spoke of a man who takes a woman in a bar and forces her to come out with him. And he said there's no relevant difference with using a love potion to take her out willingly. So it's clearly a manipulation with love potion type argument here. Uh, Tim Stratton agreed and he says, well, yeah, that would be rape. And then he brings in the uh, the example of Harley Quinn, uh, who is manipulated by the Joker. So here again, a manipulation uh, argument case. Okay. Um, and in the other show, uh, he uses an analogy with a Star Wars droid uh, reprogrammed. <laughs> yes. Uh, Braxton used the reboot of Robocop films where someone puts a chip in him and gives him thoughts. Uh, and we, he says, we wouldn't hold Robocop uh, responsible for what he does. Uh, and all throughout, they use the analogy of the mad scientist controlling you with brain electrodes. So it's a festival of arguments by analogy. So let me slow down and explain exactly how arguments by analogy work, because there's some confusion, especially at the beginning of Braxton's show. So this is how arguments by analogy work. Uh, you have God determines a human choice, and Calvinists say that the person is morally responsible. That's our view. Uh, and then the objector offers an, another case, that's the analogy, in which the person is not morally responsible. And so the analogy case is a little bit different and a little bit the same as the normal case. Um, so what do you need to make the argument work? You need to go give your analogy that's a little bit like uh, the normal case. Uh, and the analogy in the analogy, uh, the person is not morally responsible. And then you need to do at least one of two things. Either you need to show that there is a relevant similarity between the normal and the analogy, or you need to show that there is no relevant difference. So these are really the two routes in order to make the argument work. You need to show that there is a relevant similarity or you need to show that there is no relevant difference. So it's important to catch this. So let me spell it out. A, a relevant similarity is a property of your analogy case that excludes moral responsibility and is also present in the normal case. So if that's that's shown, then yeah, you successfully show that the normal case should exclude moral responsibility. Uh, so you can show that there is one of those and then you win. The other way to win is to show that uh, there is no relevant difference. Uh, and the relevant difference is now a property of your analogy case that excludes moral responsibility and is not present in the normal case. So that would be a relevant difference. And if you show that there is no relevant difference, then here again, that would need to mean that the normal case excludes responsibility as well. So these are the two strategies. And my response to those, and that's really applicable, you've seen it in my book, I do that with all the arguments by analogy, not just the manipulation argument. Um, my claim is that um, there is a relevant similarity. Uh, that, so, sorry, my, my response is this. When they claim that there is a relevant similarity, they tend to remain question begging. Mm -hmm. um, either because we're not told what that similarity is, and so now it's your word against mine. Right? You say there is a relevant similarity. I don't agree. We get nowhere if you don't tell me which one it is. Um, so it's your word against ours, or because the alleged similarity is being determined. 
but that's obviously the debated question at hand. So, uh, for example, Team Stratton hammered the objection in each case, but they're both determined. Yes, but that gets us nowhere because the relevance of determinism is the question before us. And so that's for the mild claim that there is a relevant similarity. Now, if you take the second approach, which is the bolder claim that there is no relevant difference, then it's also question begging because you know, you, you say there's no relevant difference. Maybe I disagree. I just need to be convinced. And it's very hard to prove that there is no relevant difference. So it tends to remain question begging as well. But now you go beyond that because now it's even open to outright refutation because now I can produce a relevant difference. And therefore, that shows that there is in, that there is in fact a relevant difference. It's denying the claim that there is no relevant difference. And if I produce one of those, I produce a property. So it's a, a relevant difference. It's a property of the analogy case. That's enough to exclude moral responsibility in the analogy case, but it's absent from the normal case. Okay. So, and that's exactly what I do explicitly in my book for all the, uh, the analogy cases. So the, uh, the pets and puppets arguments, the robots, the coercion, manipulation, uh, the mental illness arguments by analogy. Uh, and I, in each case, I, I explain the structure of the argument. I show that it's really question begging. And then when they press the bolder claim that there is no relevance uh, difference, I offer what I take to be exactly what they ask, a relevant difference between the analogy and the normal case. So it's a property of their analogy that is in itself removing moral responsibility and yet is absent from the normal case. So uh, let me list them quickly, but they can go and see again in my book. Uh, for the pets and puppets argument, it's the lack of self-consciousness. Okay. For, the, for the coercion argument, it's the use of physical force or threats. For the manipulation argument, it's the bypass of your God-given character and desires. And for the mental illness argument, it's the inability to distinguish between right and wrong. So I provide those, and that explains, you know, I think that Leighton was really eager to uh, try to understand what makes a good or a bad analogy argument. I've really broken it down uh, carefully here. And in each case, this is exactly what you want. You want to press one of those two claims, the mild or the bold claim, that there is a relevant similarity or that there is no relevant difference. If you do the first one, it remains question begging because determinism is still debated. If yeah. you do the second one, it's still question begging, but now I can also refute it by offering my relevant differences. And I've done so in my book for all those arguments. Okay. So um, again, they say they've read my book. Uh, much of their criticism shows that they must have missed those parts, uh, but let, let's, let's look at what they say. Okay, well, Leighton responds uh, that an analogy isn't meant to have full correspondence. Yeah, of course, and, and I don't claim that it does. Um, so I think he's so used to having people criticizing his analogies that he doesn't really see that this response is irrelevant to what I said. I said the manipulator isn't relevantly analogous, and I've just explained to you what that means and how I've proven that. Uh, okay, so when you said that the manipulator isn't rel uh, relevantly analogous, he then asks, uh, is it just how you feel? Is it a feeling? Uh, no, and so uh, we go beyond that. Uh, and uh, if he's read my book, I offer a full explanation of what it means to be relevantly analogous. Okay. I, I identify the relevant properties of each analogy and show that the claim that there is a relevant similarity is question begging, and the claim that there is no relevant difference is question begging and refuted by counterexamples by providing those relevant differences that I have identified myself. Okay, so Braxton goes on to say, uh, of course, we can take any particular analogy and show that something is not directly analogous. 
Yeah, we can, but that's not what I do. Uh, I show that it's not relevantly analogous. So it's not just a matter of picking apart, hey, but this is not really like that. Uh, I show what is relevant or not. So um, the uh, I show that there's a property of the analogy that excludes moral responsibility, and that same property is not present on determinism. So that's exactly what you want to see in a response to an analogy. Well, Braxton goes on to say, in all these analogies, the thing that's the same is that something external to the agent is determining what the agent will do. Uh, yes, that's one thing that is the same. But the claim that being determined is what removes moral responsibility is your view, and I reject it. So mm -hmm. the point of the argument by analogy is to claim that there can be no relevant difference if you reject incompatibilism. And I show that it's wrong. So um, then he says that uh, my response to uh, electrodes is our experience, you know, like um, uh, the, the, my response to the manipulation case where the um, mad scientist controls my decisions with electrodes. He says that my response would be, but our experience as humans isn't like that. But that's not at all what I'm saying. Uh, what I've explained is that there is a relevant difference. I provide it, which is that it's the bypass of our God-given characters and desires. And that is a property that is uncontroversially present in the manipulation cases that we all agree is sufficient to exclude moral responsibility. So that's not controversial either. But then that same property is absent from my normal case of being determined by God. So obviously, the incompatibilist also thinks that when it's not bypassing my God-given characters and desire, but when it's purely God determining me, me, that it's excluding moral responsibility. That's their view. But at least they agree that when we do bypass my God-given characters and desires, it does exclude moral responsibility. So that provides me with exactly what they ask, a relevant uh, difference between the normal case and the analogy case. Okay. All right. Um, I think he concludes, though. He says, of course, that's somewhat different. That's why it's just an analogy and not the same thing. Yeah, so it's the same incomprehension as Leighton here. The, I right. don't ask that the analogy be the same thing. I ask that it be relevantly analogous and show that it's not. Right, so Leighton goes on to say, he says, you don't escape the problem of the analogy to begin with by pointing out all these differences between you and the robot. Yeah, no, you don't. Uh, not by pointing out there are differences, okay. but, defi but definitely by pointing out that there are relevant differences. Your properties present in the analogy that exclude moral responsibility and are absent from the normal case. Again, all of this is explained in my book. Uh, you can go back, you know, read it slowly and see it addresses all these arguments by analogy. Well, read it very slowly because your book is well, not... A walk in the park. <laughs> the, the, the upside is my book does not come with a French accent. So the, the <laughs> you can choose your own accent when reading the book. I, I, I choose the British accent and let the words flow off nice and smoothly. But uh, all right. Oh, so, so let's turn to this issue on, on God willing evil. Okay. So the argument was if Calvinism is true, evil is according to God's will, but evil is not according to God's will. So Calvinism is false, it would seem. Yes, and so in response to that argument, I had pointed out the equivocation in his syllogism between the decretive and the permissive will of God once again. So on Calvinism, God wills evil as part of his decretive will, but he doesn't will evil as part of his prescriptive will. So the two premises of his syllogism are true, only in different senses of the will of God, so it commits an equivocation. Okay, so Leighton goes on to say, everything that happens according to the decree uh, but several passages uh, say that God did not desire or even decree certain things. Uh, Jeremiah 19, 
I did not command these things, nor did I decree it. And it's, uh, he says it's in the ESV and it goes on to say, um, the Calvinist it, Bible, basically. I'm sorry. The ESV, the Calvinist Bible. Right? That, that's right. That's right. I, <laughs> that's right. Uh, he says it goes on to say that it didn't. He did. It didn't enter my mind. God says so. It strongly suggests that God didn't have anything to do with it, whether prescriptive or decretive. Yeah. So we already talked about that text. Um, so what do I make of it? Uh, I think that God is using very strong language to describe how much these actions go against His commands. But in attacking Calvinism, you can't press that language so literally that it refutes your own view in the process. Yeah. Uh, unless you are an open theist, uh, it's not true that their action didn't even enter God's mind. Now, arguably, even, even on open theism, God knew it in his mind as a possibility. Okay. But, but if you're all the more, if you're a Molinist, then the action is foreordained too. Right? Right. Stratton at least is clear on that. God foreordains everything that happens. Only you can tell that every time he says that, Flowers looks really uncomfortable. I don't think that they're in line on that point. Okay. Um, but, but back to the question of two wills, even on libertarianism, you're committed to saying that God permitted it and therefore he willed it in some sense. So he could have prevented the sin with a more dramatic, uh, you know, more drastic measure, but he didn't. So he must have preferred that the evil happened. And in that sense, it must have been his permissive will. So the complaint is self-defeating here, because even on libertarianism, God has several mutually exclusive desires. It's not the will of God that people be nailed to the to crosses. And yet somehow the Bible says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't see that they need that distinction themselves. And so I think they launch a full front attack on the idea of two wills in God in the uh, clips that follow. Okay. If you want to read the uh, the next clip. Sure, sure. Leighton goes on to say, uh, a lot of times Calvinists will create aspects in order to unfalsify their views. So two kinds of love, two kinds of callings, two kinds of will. And so Stratton in his, uh, yeah, it would be gentle, but in a seemingly mocking voice, he says, yeah, God desires all people to be saved, but he has a greater desire for his glory. Yeah, so so it, it seems to be a, a criticism uh, of the the view that uh, somehow it's creating two uh, different wills in God, and we can't have any of this. But they must say the same thing. Yeah. They say, you know, um, yeah, God, you know, so like his sentence, yeah, God desires all people to be saved, but he has a greater desire for his glory, is the, what he complains about in the Calvinist view. But they must themselves say, yeah, God desires all people to be saved, but he has a greater desire to give liberty and free will to humans. Okay. So the, the concept of two wills is exactly there. And, you know, we can imagine the universalists now complaining against their view uh, by saying, oh, but uh, Tim Stratton is making his views unfalsifiable by having two wills like this he wants to save everyone but he doesn't save everyone so obviously i don't agree that this criticism is valid but he's taking issue with the same thing that tim stratton criticizes us for which is that god has two wills about two conflicting things and one prevails so uh and with respect to the uh, the accusation that we you know find two kinds of love or two kinds of callings two kinds of will uh, more generally detecting equivocation and drawing drawing coherent distinctions is the main job of the philosopher to avoid confusion uh, their complaints that i'm drawing distinction amount to them saying it's really hard to refute calvinism without committing an equivocation yeah. <laughs> yes uh, it's very hard indeed and I think it's interesting, too, that, uh, you know, the suggestion that the two wills categories is made 
for the purpose of being unfalsifiable. It's just it. Those are distinctions that have to be made given what we see in the text. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, when the Bible says that God wills something, but then he also brings about something else, it seems like we have those two senses of God's will. And once again, it's something that uh, the libertarian must affirm himself. So it should really not be this big of a controversy. Okay. Well, Tim goes on to say, uh, he says, when I think about the prescriptive versus the descriptive will, it uh, doesn't make sense to me. I may be missing something. If God says this is how you ought to think and act, but hey, I'm going to punish you for acting the way I determined you to act. That doesn't seem intuitive. Yeah, so the intuition is going on here. I don't think he's objecting to the uh, two wills of God. Because mm -hmm. um, as I said, if he were just objecting to that, that would be self-defeating because the concept is obviously coherent that God has some desire for X, but a greater desire to not do X. I think here he's objecting more to the denial of the principle of alternate possibility. Okay. Uh, and he's saying that his rejection is not intuitive. Uh, you know, he says, uh, if God says you ought to think and act, but hey, I'm going to punish you for acting the way I determined you to act. He seems to say, well, it's not fair for God to blame us if we don't have the ability to do what he's asking us to do. Um, and uh, here again, I'm going to press the fact that, yeah, maybe it's not intuitive. I don't know. But uh, is it intuitive that God would blame us for failing to live a sinless life? when our fallen nature makes it categorically impossible. I think you have the same, same uh, counterintuitiveness here, and yet I think they're committed to those biblical teachings. Sure. Uh, well, Braxton goes on to say, he says, speaking about uh, two wills of God makes sense if libertarian free will is in play. Okay, so good. Uh, he sees that he needs to say that on his own view. Uh, evil is according to the permissive will of God. So I think he's more reasonable than the other two here, um, except that you don't need libertarianism to affirm that there are two wills in God. Okay. Um, all you need is two conflicting desires with one carrying the day. Um, that doesn't need to involve free will. God doesn't want you to suffer at the dentist, uh, but he wants you to have good teeth. Uh, it's there. You have two wills, okay. but there's no there's no need for liberty and free will to show that the concepts are coherent. And this uh, concept is what the Calvinist affirms of all evil across the board. Okay. Uh, well, well, Braxton offers uh, an analogy of Bob of Bob Ross painting, which, by the way, I used to love that show. It used to be on as soon as I got home. We got this nice Afro guy painting, nice little happy bush. Yeah. I did, not, I, didn't, I did not grow up in the uh, United States, but I have come to discover Bob Ross. Uh, people have showed me what the, the, the whole thing is, and uh, I'm all on board. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, he offers an analogy of a Bob Ross painting where the painter says, I want a painting with only happy clouds and trees. But then he paints and puts ugly or sad trees in it. What sense does it make to say he wants only happy trees? He anticipates that you would say this. We aren't brushes. Brushes don't have a conscious experience. Brushes do make choices, even if they're determined. And in that sense, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but no, uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, okay. I, th I think that would be clearly false. Um, making yeah. a choice is possible on determinism, I maintained, but it's not possible if you're not at least self-conscious. Okay. So that's a necessary condition for choice. So brushes don't make choices, no. Um, but here's what I would say to his actually good illustration. Um, I would say that it's perfectly meaningful to affirm that the painter wants ugly trees uh, and he also doesn't want ugly trees in two different senses, one in isolation and one considering the full picture. Mm. So locally, it's not pretty, but in the full picture, there's a greater benefit of having the ugly tree that magnifies the 
overall picture. So it paints a more beautiful overall picture. You can imagine that this be quite coherent. And I, I affirm that similarly, God does not like it when I sin, uh, considered in isolation. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, there's, he, he has more or sufficient reasons to prefer the scenario in which there was that sin. And in the end, he finds it more glorious that, uh, I mean, personally, that I was a wretched sinner who didn't believe in God, who sinned like there was no tomorrow, and that I was found and saved by him. It's a more glorious story like that. Uh, and I think Jesus puts it like this. He says, there's more joy in heaven for a sinner who repents than for 99 righteous that don't need to repent in the first place. Hmm. Well, Leighton goes on to say, uh, what if you told your wife and daughter you want your daughter to go to college, but behind the scenes, you manipulate everything to prevent her from going? I would be fond of that. Yeah, so we're back to the uh, principle of alternate possibilities here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, the same thing applies to the counterintuitiveness of being unable to live a sinless life and yet being demanded that we do. Uh, what if you told your humans that you want them to live a sinless life, but behind the scene, you curse them with a sinful nature that prevents it from happening? Uh, and then after that clip, there's, there's a bit more of Tim repeating that thoughts are determined on exhaustive divine determinism. Um, so, but we'll address that uh, a bit later on. Uh, so move, let's move on to the next argument here. Sure. So let's move on to the issue of uh, God's love. All right. So Braxton's argument was that on um, Calvinism, God doesn't love uh, the elect, but God loves everyone. So um, Calvinism is false. Okay. So you responded that love isn't binary like that, that there are different degrees and kinds of love in the Bible and that it's just the electing love that God doesn't have for the reprobate. But it's still meaningful to say he loves them as part of his creation. So they respond as anticipated. If God doesn't save them, then in what then what love is this? So what, what would you say to that? Yeah, okay. So uh, we don't have much to do here. I, I don't want to overstate the love of God for the reprobate. Uh, okay. Admittedly, they are getting the short end of the stick, and it's under God's providential control. Okay. Um, still, we can say that God has some desire to save them, but he has another purpose that's incompatible with it. Hmm. So they, they say we are in our rights to say God does not love the unelect. And fine, uh, you're in your right to say it, but it's a premise in your deductive argument. So it doesn't work if I don't buy it. Uh, and there are different kinds of love and a blanket philosophical statement of God as all loving is not going to work. Uh, and it may even be self-defeating again uh, if it's pressed against various biblical pronouncements that uh, God hates evildoers, you know, in Psalm 5.5 5, uh, and God hates the uh, wicked in uh, Psalm 11.5. So um, it's important that we don't take a perfect being theology of saying you know, God is the greatest conceivable being. Uh, what does that entail? Um, that's a perfectly legitimate exercise to think, okay, what would a perfect being do? And we have intuitions about that, but it's very important that we don't take those intuitions about perfect being theology to override the more precise revelation in scripture. And I think that our intuition about perfect being theology needs to be uh, guided and educated by the clear revelation of scripture. Mm. Now, what do you do with regards to something like Psalm 555? Uh, five, five? Know you hate the worker of iniquity. I, I heard a lot of people who want to affirm God's universal love for everyone, kind of this blanket love, right? And they'll take verses like that and kind of uh, claim that it's just poetry or a form of exaggeration. Yeah, I, I don't need to debate the uh, exegesis here. I, I think that's 
the general warning I'm offering is that you don't want a um, blanket uh, statement of God's universal loving kindness to be in conflict with uh, some of the distinctions that the scriptures draw. So uh, even if you know it's not like f maybe it's an overstatement or just the same thing is said in Romans nine, right? So about Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Um, you know where. The, the the claim is made. I think I've heard Leighton say that in one of his videos that it's not really hate; it's really just loving less, right? It's just a matter of degree, and that's fine. That's acceptable. But there are degrees, right? So we're saying that no matter what God's love is here, there is one that He loves more than the other. But okay. that that seems to be counter to our general intuition that well, if He's maximally good, if He is maximally loving, then He should love maximally everyone in the same way. Right. So what I'm saying is don't take those intuition of purely perfect being theology unbridled by more specific examples in scripture, because they should educate what the perfect being who exists. And we agree God is perfect. Uh, they educate us about what that actually looks like in practice. Hmm. All right. Well, Stratton goes on to say if someone loves a person, ultimately, that includes a desire for their eternal flourishing. So if you don't care if they make it to heaven, then it's not love, plain and simple. Yeah, so here even the Calvinists can affirm that. Uh, God has an overriding purpose, but it's not the case that he doesn't care or that he doesn't have a desire that they may be saved. Uh, so I think that the Calvinist can say that and doesn't say what uh, Tim is saying. We if, it's say. going, if it's going to be said that God loves someone but doesn't desire their ultimate flourishing, then God doesn't actually love that person, right? Yeah, and that's fine. The Calvinist can grant that uh, and still say that he loves the reprobate in that very sense, since he does desire their ultimate flourishing. It's just that he has an overriding reason not to bring it about. Okay, but Tim uh, goes on to ask, why is it needed for humans to suffer eternally for his own glory? Yeah, so I, I already answered that in part of our interview, uh, and I said that part of the reason uh, that God has may be in Romans 9, uh, where he says that it would be to show his wrath and make known his power. It really seems to be addressing that very question. And then part of the answer is we don't know from which it doesn't follow that the reason doesn't exist. So that's the standard move called skeptical theism. And skeptical theism isn't some desperate Calvinist attempt to rescue God's righteousness. It's formulated by Peter Van Inwagen, Alvin Plantinga, and William Lane Craig, and they're all libertarians. Mm -hmm. So it's really what I do with that question of what is God's morally sufficient reasons for evil uh, in general, and more in particular, eternal evil of damnation that's the answer i provide hmm. well let's move on to the issue of evil and and braxton's uh, free will theodicy braxton had had argued that when calvinists are debating the problem of evil with an atheist uh they can't use free will and so if they can't use free will then they don't have a successful response to the atheist argument where they bring up the issue of evil us calvinists we're determinists so you can't say you know there's evil because there's free will <laughs> How would you respond to that? Yeah, so I responded that the Calvinist has a fine answer, uh, that God has morally sufficient reasons to allow evil. Okay. And even if we don't know the reason, it doesn't follow that there is no reason. So that's the standard move I said is called skeptical theism. And I went on to argue that it's the same answer that they must give to. Uh, but that's where there's a bit of pushback. Okay, but now they say they, they go further than this, right? They say they, they do know the reason God always allows evil. Free will. So they, they agreed free will isn't just a defense. It's it's their theodicy, even for, for natural evil, not just moral evil. 
Yeah, so here my, my claim, my the most modest claim I make is that libertarian free will can do some of the lifting in your theodicy, but it cannot do all. So I said that there's no free will in a tsunami or the earthquake or the cancer cells or the virus. Um, mm -hmm. So God is in full control of those things that cause terrible amounts of suffering. And uh, even when it comes to human free actions, I think that there's limits to how much damage they cause against God's will. Uh, so when you think of a, a terrible case of a little girl getting kidnapped and then uh, for years and years and decades uh, being abused and raped uh, by a, a, a rapist kidnappist, kidnapper, um, you want to ask also to, to the Molinist, uh, you know, why doesn't the Molinist God kill the rapist after the first rape, right? Uh, or after the first year or the first decade? Uh, mm -hmm. he, he, he might not be able to make the rapist freely refrain but surely God can just strike him dead. So he can use uh, means that avoid that, and yet he doesn't. So there are some limitations to just how much uh, free will gets out of hand uh, for God if it's uh, indeterministic. Uh, so I don't think it's plausible to say that God just has too much respect for the rapist free will that he just leaves it completely unbridled like that. So he most likely has another reason, and that's much harder to link to free will. So I, I ultimately said that it's too ambitious to link every single instance of evil to free will. And I don't know, I mean, at least I didn't know of any libertarian philosopher who does that. Uh, I mean, that I can tell Peter Van Inwagen doesn't do that. Uh, William Lane Craig doesn't do that. Um, Plantinga doesn't do that either. So um, yeah, when Plantinga, he uses his, uh, the free will of demons uh, to explain all of natural evil, uh, when he does that, it's a defense. It's not a theodicy. He's not mm -hmm. suggesting that there's actually a, a demon behind every bush. Uh, he's saying it's just a logically possible option. So it yeah. serves as a defense and not a theodicy. So now I, I do think that there's something to be said for uh, Braxton's pushback here. Okay. Uh, because uh, there may be a path for him to say that free will is involved in all evil. Um, there's actually two different ways that uh, he can link evil to liberty and free will. So let's clarify those two, those two ways in which he can do that. Um, the first way is this. He can say, God cannot avoid a certain evil X because evil X is the result of an indeterministic human choice. Right? That's the one that I said isn't really available for natural evil because the tsunami doesn't have free will, the cancer cells don't have free will, etc. So God fully controls them, those natural evils, in the same way that he controlled human choices on Calvinism. Right? It's fully deterministic. So even you have to say that God brings about those natural evils because he has a morally sufficient reason. So even Braxton right, has to say that God brings about those natural evils because he has a morally sufficient reason. And uh, I say, even if we don't know that reason, it doesn't follow that it's not there. But uh, then what I think Braxton is trying to do is to link all of it to liberty and free will in a different way, in the second way that would go something like this. God permits that evil, not because he cannot control it, uh, because he wants it to be, but so it's not because he cannot control it, right? So in the same way that, uh, let's say, the rapist has liberty and free will and God doesn't determine the outcome of his choice. So this, things get out of hand, right? The, the rapist does something that God would have wished really didn't happen. Uh, so in the case of natural evil, it's not like that. And so... God permits that evil, not because he somehow cannot control it, but because he wants it 
the uh, natural evil to now be the influencer of another free choice that he cannot determine. Right? Do you, do you catch the difference? So in one way, it's simply God cannot control the human free choice. Right. Uh, and that clearly is not available when you say that when you're talking about natural evil, God does control that. But he might want that suffering of the tsunami or the earthquake or the, the disease to be the influencer of another free choice. And God arguably might not have needed that uh, natural suffering if Calvinism had been true and God could have just you know, zapped the person in making the right choice. So if that second piece is what uh, Braxton is trying to do, I think there's a, a coherent way that he can try to do that. So I do accept some of his pushback if that's what he has in mind. Now, um, if they do insist that is their view, that's fine with me, and I accept the pushback. I no longer have an objection that their uh, claim is self-defeating. But you must remember that it's in the context of Braxton's positive argument that the Calvinist doesn't have a good answer to the problem of evil. Okay. So, so the fact that I don't have a decisive argument against the implausible reason that they suggest uh, doesn't mean I'm left without a good answer to the problem of evil against the atheist. Um, we both say God has morally sufficient reasons for all evil, and even if we don't know those reasons, it doesn't follow that they don't exist. Right. So then they say that uh, free will is the only reason uh, for all suffering always and everywhere, right? That seems to be the, the claim that they say it's a theodicy, it's really for all. Uh, free will is the only reason for all suffering always and everywhere. And I say it's a stretch, but they might be able to get away with it. And if so, I say, great, you know, use that against the atheist. That's fine with me. I just have to believe there's other reasons instead. And that's fully available to the Calvinist when arguing against the atheistic arguments. So I don't think I'm left without a good answer to the uh, problem of evil just because I deny libertarian free will in that way. Now, at the end of the show, Hunter is uh, Hunter Braxton. I never call him Hunter. Uh, Braxton's dealing with the question of apparently uh, gratuitous evil. And he discusses William Rowe's version of the problem of evil featuring uh, a fawn burning in a, in a forest fire caused by lightning with no human around. And uh, Braxton says the Calvinist would say to this exactly what, what I would say. And that is you have no way of demonstrating that there isn't some good that comes out of that that you just can't see. Yeah, he's right. Uh, we would both say that. So that's the standard. That's the standard move of skeptical theism. And that's my answer indeed. Well, so we're on the same boat. So I say don't sabotage the boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, now we come to the final video. Now I want to, I want, it's up to you. Uh, would you mind taking some questions in between? Uh, if, if you think we want to, if you want to keep pushing on uh, so that we finish um, covering the entire topic, we can do that as well. And I'm sure our listeners would not mind one bit. Yeah. Maybe we should press on a little bit uh, just no so problem. that we cover okay. this in one coherent wall and, uh, uh, I, I think we're covering enough ground that most of the questions will be addressed, uh, but... Uh... Good. Perfect. No problem. All right. So we're moving on to Tim's uh, video. Um, here's the, the, the question here. Calvinism isn't determinism. So Stratton says that he finds it odd uh, that you conflate Calvinism with exhaustive divine determinism, because some Calvinists don't affirm a determinism. He has Greg Kolkel, Richard Muller, Oliver Crisp in mind, uh, and he says uh, that you're responsible, Bing Young is responsible for this widespread confusion and I'm working hard to clean this up. All right, so I'll be nice and just said that the uh, accusation is 
unhelpful. Um, so first of all, CRISP isn't a libertarian. Right? Oliver's CRISP only defends the compatibility of libertarianism with the reform tradition. So it's a different project, but he doesn't affirm libertarianism himself. Okay. Um, secondly, it's it's not like I'm being deceptive and smuggling in my definitions and counting on the fog of confusion here. I come out of the gates with very clear definition and I stipulate clearly that I take the determinist, the determinist view to be the Calvinist view. So there's no confusion here. I just say, this is my assumption here. Um, and third, uh, in response to that, I think that uh, Braxton himself invalidates that accusation right away in the interview. He notes that consistent Calvinists who affirm the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, must affirm determinism. And yes, I think that's my view. So uh, I'm either responsible for a mass confusion or I'm just calling people to be consistent. And I don't think it can be both. Yeah. So uh, Leighton says the same thing in that uh, same clip. Uh, he says that that it is the consistent Calvinist view. Uh, so then the microphone comes back to uh, Tim and he says, yeah, that's well said, but it seems to me that this has refuted the accusation of confusion because I agree with them. I'm not uh, you know, deceiving with my definitions or what have you. I'm really just calling them to be consistent, calling Calvinists to be consistent. Uh, that is that I think that they should affirm determinism and that is the Calvinist view. Hmm. Well, Stratton then says uh, Calvin isn't a determinist, but Edwards is. So you should call yourself an Edwardsian, not a Calvinist. Yeah, uh, so look, I, I disagree about the interpretation of Calvin here, but I don't need to debate him on the labels here. Uh, it's not because you know, it's, it's not because Calvin is teaching it that I affirm determinism. Uh, I actually have a fun story about this. Uh, once William Lane Craig asked me if I affirmed Calvinism because John Calvin was French. <laughs> no, it's not because he was French. It's because he was right. <laughs> and in the end, uh, Tim uh, himself affirms that determinism falls from the five points of Calvinism. So I don't think that there was much uh, merit to the accusation that I'm sowing confusion here. Okay, so so on this issue of definitions, uh, Leighton says lots of Calvinists use the same words as we do, but give them different meaning. And then Stratton says it's like talking to a Mormon. Uh, I guess the analogy there is that Mormons, uh, for example, will use terms like the Trinity, but they'll mean something completely different. Yeah, so this uh, we have to con constantly be defining our terms, but it doesn't tell us which words we twist, right? So we started our initial interview, you and I, by giving very clear definitions, mm -hmm. and they're completely standard. So I define determinism as the thesis that everything that happens is necessitated by antecedent factors, um, you know, and uh, that you know, Tim added there that it includes all our beliefs. Yes, uh, everything we do. So there's no debate there. So I don't, I don't know which uh, of my definitions you might find issues with, but I don't think that uh, we're, you know, twisting words like Mormons uh, to create confusion. I think our definitions are quite clear. Yeah, but it says, but the debate is about the fact that some Calvinists, like myself and you, affirm um, exhaustive divine determinism, and the majority of Christians reject this view. Yes, so we affirm divine determinism. So uh, Tim repeatedly refers to it as EDD for uh, exhaustive divine determinism. Mm -hmm. and th that's a bit heavy handed, uh, mostly because that's redund redundant. Mm -hmm. um, so determinism is the thesis that everything is determined. Right. So the exhaustive is baked into the determinism. Um, but apparently Stratton doesn't realize that because uh, that leads him to make some, some somewhat confused statements like compatibilism is sometimes true, but cannot exhaustively describe reality. 
that's a direct quote. And no, that's not consistent with his view because if compatibilism is true at any time, it's true at all times. Okay. If it's true that everything is determined, then it does exhaustively describe reality. Okay. So determinism isn't the thesis that some things are determined, it's the view that all things are determined. And we'll get, we'll get back to that because that matters in some of the formulation of the arguments. Okay, well, this, this raises a question then. So did God causally determine Calvinists like Kolkel, Krith, Muller, etc., to disagree with you? <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. All things are determined. So yes, well, God did causally <laughs> determine that. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay, and it also raises another question. Uh, Leighton, you and, and, and uh, yeah. I both used to be Calvinists, they say, right? Uh, they claim to be Calvinists. Yeah, that, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. And I, again, I can take that as their word. I didn't know them. I don't have any reason to doubt that they were sincere Calvinists in the past. But yes, to answer that question again, he's asking. Well, that raises a big question of conundrum somehow for the Calvinist. Okay. Uh, you know, did God determine us to leave Calvinism? And yes, uh, I take them at their word. I say yes, God determined that too. Uh, determinism means all is determined. Uh, so. Just get this out of the way. Uh, determinism means that everything is determined. So it makes no sense to ask, well, did God determine that? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. yes. The, answer, the answer is yes. OK. So then they play your, your definition of compatibilism, where you explain that it's the compatibility of determinism and free will. And it's not technically saying that either is true, only that they're compatible. And Stratton says he, he aims to show that this thesis, referring to compatibilism, while it might occasionally be true, it cannot exhaustively describe reality. He says, I do not reject the thesis. I simply argue that the thesis cannot exhaustively describe reality. I actually affirm compatibilistic freedom in some cases, he says. Yeah, no. So uh, that, that's a, a strong misuse of the word compatibilism. Uh, th this is exactly the confusion I was describing. He doesn't see that determinism refers to everything that happens. Mm -hmm. And compatibilism is the thesis that determinism, understood like that, is compatible with moral responsibility. So it's not accurate for him to say that he's sometimes a compatibilist. Compatibilism refers to the compatibility of determinism, which is all things are determined. So it's not something that changes with time. He goes on to say, I contend that a thesis of compatibilism cannot always or exhaustively explain reality. So Guillaume might offer one instance of knowledge that doesn't require libertarian freedom. That's fine. I might affirm some of them. However, he needs to discount all of them to rationally maintain his thesis of compatibilism or that this thesis of compatibilism exhaustively describes all instances of reality all the time. He asks the others, does that make sense to you guys? Yes. And no, I don't think it makes sense. Uh, that sentence doesn't make sense because of what I've just explained, that it's not about uh, exhaustively describing reality. Determinism is about all things and compatibilism is the compatibility of determinism with moral responsibility. Well, Leighton goes on to, to say just because God determines one thing, it doesn't mean he determines everything. Yes, that's true, uh, but nobody denies that. Right? So I'm not, uh, I'm not affirming that uh, just because God determines one thing, then he must be determining everything. Um, so nobody affirms that uh, just because God determines one thing, he, he determines everything, certainly not me. Um, well, then they play your definition of libertarianism, where you say uh, it's the conjunction of incompatibilism and the thesis that we sometimes are free from which it follows that determinism is false. And Tim says he, he only sort of agrees but uh, it wouldn't follow from this that determinism never results. Yeah, so we see here again that he doesn't understand that determinism is a thesis about all things. So if determinism is true at any time, it's true at all times. 
he says he's opposed to exhaustive, but the exhaustive is baked into the determinism. Okay. Well, can I ask? Let me ask a question then. It, can can't it be the case that God can determine some things and not others? Yes, it could be, but then that would not be determinism, right? Determinism is the view that all things are determined. That's okay. the distinction. Gotcha. All right, well, he says, this is what I mean when I speak of libertarian freedom. One's ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with one's nature. So you see, I affirm a version of compatibilism, and I jokingly refer to myself as a libertarian compatibilist. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, here, I have to say, who's creating mass confusion now? I mean, it is a completely different meaning of compatibilism. So I, I don't think he should go around calling himself that. It's it's really silly here. Okay. Then they turn to your response to Peter Van Inwagen's consequent argument. Uh, at the beginning of the video, Stratton had said, uh, Bignon defines free will as the control condition for moral responsibility. I'm not primarily concerned with moral responsibility. I'm concerned with rational responsibility. And it seems that Bignon misses this major point. He says it leads you to attack a caricature of his argument. Yeah, no, that's complete nonsense. Um, he speaks much of this, of uh, his time. Um, you know, he, he really spent a lot of time playing my responses to the consequence argument. And he deals with it as if I were responding to his free thinking argument. So that's a really big confusion. There's no caricature whatsoever. He just has a hard time following what arguments we're talking about in the interview. Okay. He, he, he said, perhaps it's my fault for being uh, for not being as clear as possible. But no, he was very clear what he was arguing. And I was very clear in my responses. Mm -hmm. So in the interview, I first responded to the consequence argument uh, for the benefit of the audience, because I didn't want to appear like I was dodging the consequence argument just because Tim didn't defend it in his blog post. Mm -hmm. So up until that point, I was obviously responding to Peter Van Inwagen's consequence argument. That's not a strawman of the so-called free thinking argument. That's just a different argument altogether. Okay, but he insists that if you're you're missing the point, right? So he says it was not my intention to debunk his interaction with Peter Van Inwagen's consequent argument. As a matter of fact, I granted for the sake of argument, Bignon's treatment of the consequent argument is granted to ultimately show that determinism and compatibilism cannot exhaustively describe reality. And since Bignon misses my intention, he misses the point. Yeah, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, I think you should read his blog again. Uh, he tells you uh, the different story himself. He says this whole thing started over lunch with apologist friends in Rhode Island, uh, where he challenged me to respond to the consequence argument. So I really didn't want to turn that lunch into a debate show. So I told him he could read my refutation of the argument in my book. Okay. And as a result, he went and looked in my book at my treatment of the consequence argument. And he said he was not impressed by it. So I, I repeat, if my response to the consequence argument is successful and entirely granted here, in what sense is it unimpressive? I don't think he tells us. Okay. So now what about this issue of the accusation of defending atheism, right? So then they play the clip where you explain that Peter Van Inwagen's consequent argument is aimed at naturalistic determinism, but that it can be applied to, to Calvinism as well. And so Stratton said Calvinists are bending over backwards to save the naturalist view, namely a big red flag should be raised if a Christian finds himself defending atheism, at least in a roundabout way. Maybe something is wrong with your specific flavor of Christianity, he says, if you find yourself defending atheism to hold on to your specific flavor of Christianity. 
Yeah, I think it's beyond the pale here. I'm obviously not defending atheism by refuting a bad argument that would have refuted atheism, right? So otherwise we should rally behind every argument for theism, even if they have false premises. So you know, I could look forward to Tim Stratton's video defending the banana argument from Ray Comfort. I mean, it supports the existence of God. You don't want to bend over backwards to defend atheism in a roundabout way, do you? So I, I don't think it's really serious. Uh, you know, Ray Comfort's banana argument. Is it on YouTube or something? I can look it up. Oh yes, no, this is a, a grand, grand moment of apologetics. Uh, okay. So, but, but, but the point is serious that uh, sure. you can refute an argument without agreeing, even if you agree with its conclusion. So the fact that I refute uh, the uh, the consequence arguments that might have otherwise successfully uh, refuted atheism doesn't mean that I'm somehow defending atheism. I'm just showing what's wrong with an argument. Sure. Now, uh, let's turn to this issue of the accusation of, of cultism and idolatry that was made in, in the video. Stratton says, uh, defending five-point Calvinism is barely defensible, but um, defending exhaustive divine determinism is akin to idolatry. Those who are devoted to exhaustive divine determinism become cultish. And then uh, Braxton says, there's a powerful connection between divine determinism and atheism. The parallel needs to be examined with great deal of sobriety. Yeah, I think all of this is also beyond the pale. I, I really don't know what that means. Uh, it's it's either irrelevant platitudes or guilt by association, uh, okay. but there's not much to say either way. So we can move on. Well, then they say there, there's a risk that Calvinism can alienate atheists. Some atheists have said, if the Bible is true, then Calvinism is true, and I couldn't worship a God like that, and that could be a stumbling block. Yeah, um, I mean, the problem is that the, the atheists also don't like a God who is not a universalist, or a God who regulates sexuality, or who permits suffering. Um, so now what do we do? Do we reject those beliefs too so that we can uh, have atheists start liking the God of the Bible? I don't think so. So yeah, I fully take the fact that maybe people don't like the God of Calvinism. And in that sense, I'm happy to tell them, look, you know, I'm to be quite open and just say, look, there's plenty of Christians who disagree with me. If you think that Calvinism is beyond the pale for you, I'd rather you become a Christian and not a Calvinist. Hmm. But yeah, I, I do agree that the Bible seems to teach Calvinism and I work very hard to show why it's not a problematic view by defending the coherence of the of the view. Right. Well, Leighton asks, uh, what practical purpose do you have in promoting a view that could cause people to stumble? Well, I have a practical purpose in teaching what is true. Um, and, you know, I think I recall the gospel of Christ crucified being a stumbling block too. So I don't think it's uh, problematic to defend something that could cause us, could, could cause uh, unbelievers to stumble. Okay. Well, uh, Tim goes on to say, he says, Calvinists and Molinists agree God predestines all things, mm -hmm. but Calvinists have a weird commitment about how God predestines, that it is by determination, by determining all things. Yeah, once again, the accusation is strange uh, and it's entirely symmetrical, right? So if it's true, then the Molinist also has a weird commitment about how God predestines through middle knowledge. So of course not. I don't think it's a weird commitment. We just disagree. So let's just stick to the arguments and instead of this childish accusation of cultism and idolatry, I don't think it gets us much uh, further. All right, well, what's up with this unimpressive response to the consequent argument, right? Stratton then reads your explanation that the truth of determinism is not relevant to the merits of your response to the consequent argument. And he says, I beg to differ. I grant Vignon's conclusion for the sake of argument and use his conclusion to argue my point. 
Yeah, so I don't think he's understood really what the concern was. Uh, there's no simpler, there, there is no simpler way for me to explain it than the way I did in our initial interview. But you can be fully successful in showing that an argument is bad, even if the conclusion of the argument is true. That's right. So if Tim just offers arguments against determinism, he's, he does nothing to undermine my refutation of the consequence argument. So once again, you don't need the conclusion to be false in order to be successful in refuting an argument. I can refute the banana argument by recomfort without being an atheist. That's the point. Okay. I really got to check out this banana argument. If, if, if people are listening and know where, where that's found, send me, send me a link. I'd be interested. In uh, he says, when I said I was unimpressed by Bignon's treatment of the consequent argument, it's because it doesn't do anything to show that divine determinism exhaustively describes reality. I would respond to that. Well, of course, my refutation doesn't do that. Right? The consequence argument is an argument for incompatibilism. So in refuting it, if I don't also demonstrate that determinism is true, it's unimpressive. No, that clearly doesn't work like that. Well, he says he didn't insult you. You're a scholar and you're a very good one. So they, he thinks very highly of you, which is... Yeah. No, that's, that's fine. I didn't take him to insult me. I mean, no one took the unimpressive here to refer to me. Uh, it referred to my treatment of the consequence arguments. And so it's misguided since my treatment of the consequence argument is entirely successful. And Tim never disputes that. He grants it. So what's wrong with my treatment of the consequence argument? That it's not also giving him everything he wants in life. I mean, that's not the point of the refutation of the argument, so. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, then he starts making comments about his free thinking argument. Okay. So, um, although it's still responding to my uh, discussion of the consequence argument, so I, he hasn't really yet played some, what I've had to say in response to his free thinking argument. Um, but when I explained the conditional and the categorical abilities to do otherwise, which were very important in my response to the consequence argument, he tried to criticize the conditional analysis with his free, free thinking argument. So, well, well, he says you could only believe otherwise if God had caused you to believe otherwise. That doesn't allow knowledge. He he thinks that that undermines the possibility of knowledge. Yeah, but yes, it does. Um, God wouldn't just cause me to believe otherwise, regardless of the evidence. Right. So uh, on the the claim here that is that I would believe otherwise if the evidence had been otherwise, uh, because the mechanism of my brain uh, through which God causes me to believe something is what it, what I said is reasons responsive. So it would have responded to reasons. If the reasons had been different, I would have believed differently. So it really makes a, an important point that we do need that, that uh, conditional ability and it does help in maintaining that we can have knowledge. But then he says, if, if all your thoughts and beliefs are always aimed at your greatest desires and they're not aimed at truth, then no one stands in an epistemic position to argue or rationally affirm that his claims are any good at all. Yeah, and so he says, if all your thoughts and beliefs are always aimed at your greatest desires and they are not aimed at truth, okay. but simply from determinism, you don't get that end. You don't get the end they are not aimed at truth. Okay. You get that you get that part from naturalistic determinism. Okay. And that's Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism, which I affirm myself, um, but being determined doesn't entail you're not aimed at truth. Um, it's not hard to get. Uh, let me actually show you that uh, with props uh, that I take into the classroom for my intro to philosophy students uh, when I teach epistemology. Um, I, I contrast a uh, thermometer 
and a magic eight ball. So I bring those in the classroom to really make that point uh, about cognitive faculties. Um, so the magic eight ball, you know, you shake it and it gives you an answer to a very deep question, uh, usually a, some sort of a yes or no answer. Uh, and then the thermometer obviously gives you the, the temperature. Uh, and uh, what I explain is that um, both are determined, right? Uh, so the problem here with the magic eight ball, so obviously both are determined and one is trustworthy to actually give you the truth, right? You obtain actual knowledge from the thermometer uh, and you wouldn't, you know, if you're uh, actually reasonable, you wouldn't trust what the magic eight ball is telling you in response to your question. And uh, the problem is not that one is determined and the other isn't, they're both determined. But the problem is that the magic eight ball is not aiming at truth, right? So um, similarly, the reason that you can't trust your brain on naturalistic determinism is uh, that it's not aimed at truth. Well, on Calvinist determinism, it is. So I think it's pretty much a slam dunk here that it's not, you don't get the not aimed at truth from just being determined because the thermometer is fully determined, but it is tracking truth in the way that the magic eight ball doesn't. Mm. So you'd say his confusion is that he's kind of almost assuming the naturalistic argument and imposing it upon the Calvinist. That it will determine. Yeah, they will. so I mean, I, I think that the, the argument is very similar here. It's a claim that somehow you shouldn't trust your cognitive faculties for some reason. And the some reason is in the case of Tim Stratton's argument is just that you're determined. And in the case of Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism, it's to claim that your cognitive faculties are not aimed at truth. They're mm -hmm. aimed at survival, right? Because they're the fruit of evolution on naturalism. Sure. So I think that I affirm the uh, uh, argument by Plantinga, which by the way, gives me ammunition against the atheist. Uh, and uh, I deny Tim Stratton's argument because I think that the relevant piece here is not being determined. The relevant piece is being aimed at truth. Well, he repeats that if you claim to know some things, then exhaustive divine determinism is false. And I don't just state this. I argue for it, he says. Yeah, so I, I hear a lot of repetition of that claim, uh, but it's very hard to see where the argument actually is here. So I, I want to invite Tim, you know, show your premises. Uh, show me how that conditional follows from premises that I must accept. It really is what's missing here in the argument. Well, he plays some, uh, some more of your discussion of the consequent argument and repeats that he's not really interested in moral responsibility. He says, I'm focusing on rational responsibility and not moral responsibility. And until that's recognized, we're going to talk past each other, he says. Yeah, so it's a bit strange. It's what I explained. So he takes my explanation on the consequence argument and he chastises me every time I talk about moral responsibility instead of rational responsibility. But it's the part where I'm explaining how to refute the consequence argument. So his so-called free-thinking argument is nowhere near at the moment in those clips. So okay. I'm not sure why he doesn't get that. Uh, so we're evidently, evidently, we're talking past each other here but it's pretty clear whose fault it is at this point. He constantly responds to my treatment of the consequence argument as if I were arguing against his free-thinking argument. And then he blames me for the confusion, uh, for confusing moral responsibility with epistemology. It's, mm. it's a bit bizarre. Okay. Well, he says, Bignon said that there's a big fat equivocation in many anti-Calvinist arguments that simply speak of the ability to do otherwise without distinguishing which one is in view, end quote. That might be true, but it's irrelevant here because I go out of my way to distinguish what is necessary for knowledge. Bignon says, quote, if they mean categorical ability, then they're begging the question, end quote. That's false. 
That's simply false because I offer deductive arguments. I support them, I defend them, and I've been having these conversations with PhD philosophers and theologians since 2012. Would you uh, speak to that? Yeah, so it's a bit awkward because I'm the foreigner here and I do speak with an accent, but here I think he's just has trouble following the simple flow of that English sentence. I was talking about a good number of arguments that fail to distinguish between categorical and conditional abilities. Uh, okay. I've listed several of them in my book by uh, David Whitaker, uh, Peter Van Inwagen, David Kopp. Um, and so they all do that. They give you a story where you have conditional ability. You don't have the conditional ability to do otherwise. And then uh, you are not morally responsible. And then they generalize and say, well, therefore, you need the categorical ability to do otherwise. And I'm saying it's a non sequitur. So I'm talking about that, the fact that just uh, showing a story where you have conditional ability, you, you lack the conditional ability to do otherwise, doesn't give you incompatibilism. It is begging the question if you do the jump to the need for a categorical ability to do it otherwise. That's what I'm talking about. And I, in that very same sentence, I say, so if they mean categorical ability, then they beg the question. And it, this is not talking about Stratton. So he's really misunderstood that second part of the sentence here. And uh, if he wants a more immediate example of exactly what I'm talking about here, of begging the question by doing that, he doesn't have to go too far because um, Braxton himself um, did it in that very video. Uh, he offered a story where he's sitting on the couch and asking his daughter to carry the couch into her bedroom. And he says, if I ask my daughter to carry the couch to her bedroom while I'm sitting on it, I can't blame her because she can't do it. Mm. But you can see she doesn't have the conditional ability to do it. She cannot do it even if she wanted to. So Braxton uses it to conclude that Calvinism, Calvinism is false. And I say it's a non sequitur because of that very equivocation on the conditional versus categorical ability. Right. So, so I continued in maintaining that the affirmation of conditional principle of alternate possibilities isn't sufficient and we need additional arguments. So then Tim responded very loudly, well, there were several arguments in my blog post. Um, yes, I'm aware that there are arguments uh, for more, for uh, incompatibilism or for indeterminism, and he's offered some. Uh, I'm saying that the mere affirmation of conditional principle of alternate possibility isn't one. And that's beyond dispute, I think, and he's offering different arguments doesn't refute that. Hmm. Well, what about on this this uh, comment of, of being a game changer, right? And then they discuss the controversy over the phrase game changer. And if people watch the first video, they know what, what I'm referring to here. Yeah, so he says he didn't use game changer uh, in his dissertation. Uh, so he said that we would be happy there, but in a blog article, he did. Um, so I affirm that determinism and libertarianism are incompatible, and that's purely definitional. Uh, and he called that affirmation, that concession, a game changer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I explained that it's ridiculous to say my affirmation of definitions is a game changer. That should have been the end of the story, but apparently he insists uh, and he says this. He says, it is a game changer for those who are playing the game and arguing that exhaustive divine determinism does or does not always describe reality. That's the game I'm talking about. Okay. Um, and, and I'm really not too sure how to interpret that sentence, but I cannot think of any interpretation that removes the absurdity of calling my affirmation of definitions a game changer. Uh, 
So uh, I went on and you know, kind of jokingly put on Twitter a meme that a friend of mine had done, uh, where he put a picture of Tim Stratton uh, doing a mic drop, um, and the the caption reads, uh, "My opponent admitted that bachelors are unmarried. Game changer." Uh, and I think it made the point that affirming a definition isn't a game changer for any debate. Sure. But then he goes on to say Guillaume's remarks are game changing when you take all of them together. So all of it, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't think this is what he meant. Uh, it's clear in the blog, you know, read the article again in your okay. game changer sentence. Uh, he's explaining explicitly is explicitly talking about my affirmation that compatibilism and libertarian free will are incompatible. He's not talking about all my statements together, whether in my book or in my interview. It's really about that. Well, they ask, uh, does it make sense to you guys? Maybe I shouldn't have used the words uh, game changer. Braxton responds, there's nothing wrong with using provocative language to have your words be heard. After all, he used a meme, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And of course, that's not the point at all that I'm making here. I'm, I'm not objecting because it's provocative language. I mean, actually, the phrase game changer is not even provocative. I'm objective. I'm objecting because it's absurd to call the affirmation of definition a game changer. Okay. Then Braxton says again that you fail to hit Stratton's view uh, because you're talking about moral responsibility. I guess the issue of moral rationality as opposed to responsibility. Yeah, yeah, so it's the same bizarre criticism. Um, so far, I was only responding to the consequence argument in the in the video. So then, yes, we are about to turn to the so-called free-thinking argument, but he hasn't even played a, a sentence of my response to it so far. So well, I don't well, think it's really relevant. It starts right after, right? They finally play a response to it eventually, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they get to the free-thinking argument. Okay. Um, so let's let's transition to the free thinking argument. Then they first respond to your claim that it's not an argument for incompatibilism. Yes. So um, I had mentioned initially that um, the uh, the the argument that uh, Tim offers, which he called the free thinking argument, um, he is it's not an argument for indeterminism. It's not for its truth, but its impossibility of affirming it rationally. So it's he's saying it's the claim is that determinism could be true. But then it would still be irrational to affirm because knowledge claims would be impossible. Um, and in response, uh, they say, but Bignon is making knowledge claims. So yes, of course, I don't plan to use this as an escape. Uh, I'm just laying out the logic of the argument. I do maintain that we make knowledge claims and therefore I, I don't want to say determinism is true and I just cannot rationally affirm it. No. Certainly, I want to rationally affirm it. Um, so I, I was just explaining the structure of the argument, and I don't plan to use this as an escape. I'm, I'll tell you full well which escape I actually take of the argument. I deny the conditional that if determinism is true, you can't have knowledge or draw rational inferences. That's my response to the argument. Okay. Well, then Tim says that he argued that compatibilism entails determinism, but determinism is refuted by the free-thinking argument, so it does refute compatibilism. Yes, uh, and that's fine. Uh, I think he's missing a few premises to go from compatibilism to determinism, uh, but that's acceptable to me. I've tried to offer these premises myself in the past. Uh, I, I just note that we're still not in my refutation of the argument. It's just my explanation of the claims. Okay. Well, then they, they, they say you were uncharitable when you accused him of claiming too much ownership of the argument, which you said he didn't invent. Uh, and they say everyone uses what came before us. Stratton says he stands on the shoulders of giants. And he offered his own formulation of the syllogism. 
Yeah, so I, I don't want to dwell too much on that. Uh, the problem with the argument is that it's bad. It's not that it's unoriginal, but I, I, I do believe he claims too much ownership. I mean, um, in my book, you know, to take similarly the same kind of exercise, in my book, I offer my formulation of Luther's argument that original sin refused the principle of alternate possibilities. Yeah. But, but I don't say that I came up with the slave-choosing argument and I don't launch the slave-choosing ministries. So uh, I, I don't think there's need to insist here, but I'd, I'd rather focus on the refutation of the argument. Okay. Uh, you would said it's obvious which premise the Calvinist will refuse. If determinism is true, knowledge is impossible. Tim says you didn't include the words rationally inferred and affirmed. Yeah, that, that's fine with me. So uh, in that case, uh, it, it might look like he's no longer targeting all knowledge. And maybe I had misunderstood that piece of his, if that's the case. Um, but he's only targeting a subset of that and saying it's only our knowledge obtained by inference. And yeah, I do insist that knowledge obtained by inference is compatible with determinism. So we have the relevant disagreement to resolve here. So the argument is not really affected by that. We are just focusing on one more specific type of knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, but I do affirm that we have it even if we're determined. So there's still the relevant disagreement here that uh, needs to be debated. Yeah. Well, then he quotes you saying, uh, the indeterminist must support the premise or the argument remains question begging. End quote. And he says, that's true. I agree. Yeah. So we're clear now on what he needs to do. Then he needs to support the claim that determinism excludes knowledge or rationally inferred knowledge with premises that the determinist accepts. Otherwise, it's question begging. Right. But he never really offers those premises that should make me accept that determinism excludes knowledge. He only hammers the same question. You know, it says, if a mad scientist determines everything God Guillaume believes, how can Guillaume, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm any of his beliefs without begging the question? So first, it's a question. So it's not an argument. Uh, and I need to be given some premises that I must accept and then which entail the truth of the disputed conditional. Mm -hmm. right? So this is really what's, what's missing here. Uh, and second, that, that question that he asked is actually quite easy to answer. Uh, how do I rationally affirm any of my beliefs? For the sake of argument, I can just buy fully into, let's say, Alvin Plantinga's account of, of what knowledge is. And I could say exactly this. I have a belief formed by cognitive faculties functioning properly in an environment that is suited to them according to a design plan aimed at truth. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's Plantinga's account of knowledge. Uh, and I could say exactly that. Uh, none of it is incompatible with determinism. And then if he takes the, the case of the mad scientist and he says that the mad scientist uh, does exclude any of those items that are important for knowledge, then yes, it's going to exclude knowledge, but then it shows that the uh, mad scientist case is now disanalogous to the normal case that I affirm, where the Calvinist God does give us cognitive faculties designed to track truth and give us a, pre a preponderance of true beliefs. So that would be how I answer his question and simply ask for an argument that uh, supports that conditional that's controversial. Well, he does anticipate that you, you would give that sort of response. And so he says this, if Guillaume's next words are externalism, I'd interrupt and say, I'd like to talk to Guillaume, please, not the mad scientist. 
Yeah, so this is really obnoxious. Uh, and apparently, um, they've in the video they seem to discuss a little bit that you know with the and and he doesn't really understand why his opponents uh, keep rolling their eyes when he does that. So let let me explain precisely why it's so obnoxious and that perhaps may stop. He, he maybe perhaps stop doing it to other poor chaps who engage with him on this argument. Uh, so he affirms a conditional: if knowledge is possible then determinism is false. I obviously dispute that conditional. I affirm the antecedent uh, that says knowledge is possible, and I deny the consequent that says determinism is false. Okay. Right? So I dispute the conditional, uh, I deny the uh, consequent, and I affirm the antecedent. But every time I open my mouth with the assumption that the antecedent is true, he mocks me for my denial of the consequent as if I were also denying the antecedent. So it's really misguided. And a way to simplify and illustrate this, imagine that I keep claiming something that's obviously absurd, uh, but imagine that I claim if someone speaks English without a French accent, then everything they say is false. Right? That's, <laughs> that, that's the crazy conditional. But let's imagine that I claim that. And then I interrupt them every time they voice an English sentence. Ah, no French accent. Why are you saying false things all the time? Are you not interested in the truth? Uh, it's <laughs> extremely obnoxious because the debate is on the conditional. It's not on whether I affirm the antecedent, which I obviously do, or whether I accept the consequence, which I obviously don't. So okay. that's really why it's not really profitable to simply catch you in your sentences like, oh, you say that. Well, yeah, but it's, since I don't, I don't buy the conditional, it doesn't really help for that you point out that I affirm the antecedent. Hmm. Well, then he quotes uh, an epistemologist, uh, Kelly Fitzsimmons Burton, who says this, quote, proper functions of our cognitive faculties must first rule out the deterministic influences of outsiders, such as Alpha Centurion, cognitive scientists, Cartesian evil demons, and also internal influences such as a brain uh, lesion, or even the influences of mind-altering substances. All of these influences may cause one's faculties to fail to function properly. Right. Uh, so I think that evil Cartesian demons and brain lesions uh, may cut the link between the evidence and the belief so that the cognitive faculties are not functioning properly and they fail to respond to the evidence. Uh, but God's determining providence isn't like that in the normal cases. Okay. So what, what makes the cognitive faculties dysfunction in the case of brain lesions and Cartesian demons is that they are no longer in line with their design plan to track truth. Hmm. So with those kinds of worries, you would have a defeater on determinism only if you believed that God makes your cognitive faculties dysfunction a majority of the time. Right. But but no one thinks that in the normal cases, God doesn't interfere with your proper function of our cognitive faculties. And so his deterministic influence is not a defeater for our belief. Okay. Well, then they play a clip where you give a simple account of coming to know X. I used my God-given brain to consider the evidence and believe X. And then Stratton interrupts the clip. He says, not so fast, Guillaume Bignon. Uh, did Bignon, the thing he refers to as I, consider and evaluate the evidence? Or was he caused and determined by the mad scientist? Yeah, and it's a false dilemma. So we've seen already it's it's an obviously false dilemma since even his own wording entails that both horns of the dilemma are true. If I am caused to do X, then I do X. You know, we saw if I cause my pen to fall, it is the case that my pen falls. 
Well, then he says, if he is free and not caused and determined by the mad scientist or anything else, then Bignon is free and liberated to think. To this French philosopher, I say, welcome to the land of free in a libertarian sense. If it's true, you say, uh, how did I come to know X? Well, I used, I, emphasis on I, use my God-given brain. If you say that, then you say, I use my libertarian freedom to deliberate and consider the evidence. Yeah, so no, and, and you know, here he is repeating the disputed conditional claim ad nauseum. Uh, what I would say is give us premises that the determinist accepts and that supports that disputed conditional. And as yeah. a parenthesis, I should say that I'm quite happy in the land of the free. Uh, I enjoy my life in this uh, wonderful <laughs> country, and I'm quite grateful that God has brought me here. Oh, praise God, <laughs> praise God, man. Awesome. Well, he says, now, if Bignon continues to be exhaustively caused and determined by the mad scientist, then Bignon is gone. I don't know where he went, and all we're left with is question begging. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how, like we're not told how any of this follows from premises that we must accept. And again, I, I don't think that beliefs beg the question, but the fact that I would be gone or that uh, he, he doesn't know where I'm, I'm, I went, uh, it's a bit bizarre. Okay, well then he offers another version of the free thinking argument, the deliberation and liberation argument. So one, Rationality requires deliberation. Two, deliberation requires liberation. Three, therefore, rationality requires liberation. Four, some humans are rational. Five, therefore, some humans possess liberation. That is to say, some humans possess libertarian freedom. This argument hinges on the word deliberation. It gives West, uh, Webster's definition of deliberation to weigh in the mind, to consider and examine the reasons for or against a measure to estimate and weigh the, uh, the weight or force of arguments or the probable consequences of a measure in order to a choice or decision to pause and consider. Yeah, and once again, nothing in there calls for indeterminism. So I'm fine with that account of deliberation, and it's perfectly compatible with theistic determinism. Okay, so next he asks a question, is it truly possible to deliberate without libertarian freedom? Well, the answer emerges after dwelling upon the nature of determinism. For if exhaustive determinism is true, then the non-rational laws of nature and past events or God, or God always exhaustively determines a person's considerations, examinations, and estimations. All of one's thoughts about their beliefs and one's beliefs about their thoughts. If that's the case, the person, in the case the thing Bignon refers to as I, cannot rationally affirm or provide a justification that his belief really is the best or true, including his belief that determinism is true. Yeah, no, no, no. It's an ad nauseum repetition of the conditional, right? If this, then that. But there's nothing that the determinist needs to accept here. The laws of nature are not rational, yes, but God is and is the one who designed our cognitive faculties to obtain knowledge. So there's no reason to think that this sort of determinism excludes knowledge. Okay. Well, then they play your claim that when Stratton keeps responding, but you're determined, it's only a good retort if you're already convinced that determinism is incompatible with knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, Stratton responds, uh, let me remind you that an argument has been provided to show that determinism is in fact incompatible with rationally inferred and rationally affirmed uh, claims of knowledge. Uh, no, and, and that's my point. So we've only had repetition of the disputed conditional and his new syllogism uh, about deliberation, which you know, wasn't offered in the article we were responding to in the first place, um, still says nothing to convince a determinist that deliberation requires libertarian free will. Okay. Well, then Braxton brings up a, a Cartesian certainty saying knowledge doesn't require absolute certainty. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, and it's it's irrelevant uh, yeah. because they're not asking for absolute certainty and I'm not saying that they're asking for it. So it's really a non-issue here. Well, then they ask for the ability to choose otherwise, saying that if determinism is true, all your beliefs are chosen by someone other than you. And if that's the case, you couldn't have chosen better beliefs. Yeah, so here again, it's only interesting if the ability is conditional. Okay. Uh, if your beliefs are what they are, regardless of your reasoning and reflection, then yes, something is wrong and you can't have knowledge. But if he means that we need the categorical ability to choose otherwise, then he's begging the question because I don't have to accept that premise. Okay. Well, then he plays the clip where you're saying that only arguments beg questions. Beliefs don't beg questions. In response, the inference to the best explanation is an abductive argument and fallacies apply to reasoning, which include abduction. And then Braxton says fallacies can happen even when formal syllogisms are not being brought. What do you say to that? Yes, so I think they're right. Uh, you can commit some fallacies in your reasoning, even if you're not engaging someone else in a debate. Uh, I'm just saying that the specific fallacy of begging the question isn't really applicable to someone who just draws an inference to the best explanation uh, quietly in his own room. You know? uh, it's, it's not a deductive reasoning anyway. So the drawing of the inference is already a non sequitur in that sense. Okay. So by affirming a conclusion that doesn't logically follow from the premises, it doesn't follow logically. You're just saying, hey, I'm drawing the inference because it's the best explanation. So by drawing that uh, inference, you're already somewhat begging the question if it's intended to be deductive. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I don't think it's uh, relevant. So I, I don't think Tim's accusation should say we beg the question. Uh, when we claim to draw rational inferences. You should rather say that we're not being rational or that our inferences cannot be justified or cannot be trusted or something like that. Uh, but begging the question only happens really when you presuppose a controversial premise when trying to tell the conclusion, to sell the conclusion to someone who doesn't already believe it. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's oh, the very thing that he keeps doing with his repetition of the conditional, which I dispute. If determinism is true, then rationality is impossible. So well, that's that's the proper understanding. Okay, well, well, he adds, if we always choose according to our greatest desires all the time, then they're never aimed at truth. They are, okay, so now he's engaging with the relevant question for our cognitive faculties. Wow. Are they aimed at truth? So this claim of his is now obviously false uh, from our choosing according to our greatest desires all the time. It doesn't follow that they are never aimed at truth. Okay. On the contrary, um, God gave us thinking abilities that when they're functioning properly are tracking truth. They're driven by a desire to believe the truth. Now, of course, it's not infallible. And sometimes we believe what's convenient instead of what's true, or we can fail in our reasoning. Uh, but the possibility of all of this doesn't exclude knowledge. You know, at some point when I explained that uh, even a mad scientist could determine me to know things if he does it through a mechanism that preserves knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, Tim Stratton said, the how is irrelevant, you're determined. But we see here that that what is important for cognitive faculties to be reliable is the how. It, it's No, what, what is important is where they go, not how they get there. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not the the relevant piece here is that they must be aimed at truth, regardless of of whether they travel toward the truth in a deterministic or indeterministic fashion. Okay. Right. What right really what you want is your beliefs to land on truth, no matter how you travel to them. Hmm. Well, he goes on to say, moreover, on Vignon's view, God causally determines some people, including some of the elect, to hold true beliefs. 
and other people, including some of the elect, to hold false beliefs because even scripture talks about even the elect will be deceived, right? Well, with this odd view in mind, how can Binyam rationally affirm or argue that this deceiving God, and I would use the word God there with a little g, because that's clearly not a maximally great being, uh, cause, uh, I'm sorry, cause, how can Binyam rationally affirm or argue that this deceiving God has causally determined Binyang to hold correct thoughts and beliefs through all the right mechanisms as opposed to Tim Stratton without begging the question. Well, good luck with that. I don't even know what the word proper means here. What does proper even mean if everything always happens exactly the way God makes it happen? How would you respond to that? Yeah, so it's quite simple. I mean, let's take my thermometer again, right? So um, it, you have a thermometer that gives you the temperature deterministically and imagine that I also have one that's broken, right? I break it in half, and now it's well, just you know, remove the battery or whatever. It's not functioning properly. Uh, both the good functioning thermometer and the broken thermometer are determined, but one is functioning properly and the other one isn't. That's what proper means here in the Plantigan language, that the cognitive faculties are functioning properly. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we see with the thermometer example that just because they're determined doesn't mean that they're not properly functioning. It, you could properly function and detect truth successfully even while you're determined. Right. Well, he goes on to say, it seems that even if one is causally determined to believe something false and believes it true, then in the ultimate sense, it is proper. There doesn't seem to be any functioning at all if something or someone else causally determines exactly how one always thinks of and exactly how one always thinks about it. Yeah, so and I think that's obviously false. I think the thermometer that gives you the temperature is causally determined and it's functioning properly. The one that's broken is also determined and not functioning properly, but I don't think it's too hard to distinguish between those two. So that, that's when I brought up uh, in the interview, I brought her, um, the language by Fisher and Raviza, uh, their criterion for moral responsibility. They say that uh, your um, decision-making mechanism must be reasons responsive, right? It's uh, they speak of reasons responsiveness. And here I would say the broken thermometer doesn't give you a different number when the temperature changes, mm -hmm. but the functioning thermometer does. So, so they are responding to a different condition in the input. So similarly, our cognitive faculties are responding differently to different reasons when they are functioning properly. Hmm. So uh, Stratton plays me explaining this, but he doesn't address what I say. He, he just marvels that I would have been determined to accept Fisher's view. Um, and it's the same annoying move that I explained earlier is really obnoxious. And he repeats the claim ad nauseum, which doesn't help to support it for someone who doesn't already accept that conditional. Okay. Well, then he plays the clip where you say that beliefs are arbitrary if they're not determined by the evidence. Yes. Uh, although he mis misrepresents uh, what I said here because he makes me claim that our beliefs must be determined by someone else. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, so in response, then he takes God's beliefs and he says that they are not caused by someone else. But he's missing the point. Uh, God's beliefs are not determined by someone else, but they are necessitated by the facts. So God doesn't have the categorical ability to think otherwise than what's true, right? He only would think of otherwise if conditionally the facts were different. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely the conditional that I say is true of me on determinism. If my cognitive faculties are reasons responsive, I'm saying if the evidence had been different and my uh, cognitive faculties are functioning properly to track them, then they would have detected something else. 
So that I think is true of God, that he knows all things perfectly and he would have known those things to be different if they had been different. But he doesn't, as it stands, categorically have the ability to believe otherwise than what the truth is. His beliefs are necessitated by the truth. Hmm. He goes on to say, if you do not possess the ability to evaluate and reject false beliefs, then you don't have rationality. Yes, of course. And the ability to evaluate and reject false beliefs is compatible with determinism. Okay. Well, then you said the categorical ability to believe otherwise with the same evidence is actually irrational, right? I smell the bread and freely chose to believe no one baked the bread, right? Stratton responds that you missed the point because uh, he's not interested, pardon, in belief, only in thinking. It's the free thinking argument, not the free believing argument, he says. Yes, but your thinking leads to belief, right? That's exactly the kind of thinking that he's been talking about, the drawing of an inference to the best explanation. So there's evidence, the, the smell of bread in my example, and yeah. then one draws a conclusion, an inference to the best explanation, and the explanation is someone must have baked the bread. So it's exactly the case that he's using in his argument, and therefore I don't think that there's any faux pas in using this uh, to say that uh, if you affirm that you actually have a categorical ability to believe otherwise, to, you know, to think differently, that you're really saying, I smell the bread, but it's crucial that I have this categorical ability to say, no, there's a smell of bread, but no one really baked the bread. And I, I say that's absurd, and I don't think it's a condition for knowledge. All right, well, then he had he typed a, a question during our interview about the mad scientist thought experiment, right? You initially thought it was the standard manipulation argument with a mad scientist, and then you realized it was a different argument. So you responded to it, and he says, I'm glad the mad scientist made Bignon realize that. Uh, but I'm going to repeat it again because I want to speak to Bignon. What does Guillaume mean when he says my response? It's not his response. Yeah, it's still the same object, obnoxious objection. Yeah. Okay. And then he says, uh, then there's more of where is Bignon uh, gone? Where did he go? We'll see him on milk carton soon because I apparently you're missing. <laughs> yeah, because oh, I went meeting. Creative. That was a good. <laughs> I would have not seen Guillaume on a milk carton as long as I knew you were safe. You would make yeah. a good face on a milk carton. <laughs> I don't know. My kids might be worried uh, over their cereals in the morning. Um, but I think it's clear. At this point, it's over in the video, and he's not really addressing the substance of what I said. It's just a rhetoric on the where is Guillaume gone. So Okay. So uh, why don't we uh, – I'll give you – some time to, to draw some conclusions. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, I think that we we've tried to go go as fast as we could, and it's already a pretty lengthy response. And it's the best we could do to respond to almost seven hours of uh, of uh, their videos. Uh, but I think that there was an, enough uh, substance to cover really the heart of all of their objection. Yeah. Um, so let me just uh, try to finish on a positive note. Um, in the very end of the show, um, Braxton had a pretty interesting analysis of my belief in irresistible grace uh, in light of how quickly and spectacularly God had revealed himself to me when I was an atheist. Okay. Uh, so yes, people don't necessarily know that, but I, I was an atheist until I was a, a young adult. And uh, then through a series of very improbable and providential events, God has basically grabbed me by the throat and made me a Christian. Uh, so the, the the full story, actually, I'm uh, I'm in a contract with Tyndale Publishers for a book to come out next year uh, that that uh, kind of uses my uh, conversion story as a springboard to uh, explain some apologetic uh, in responding to atheism. So um, I I talk about some of the questions that I wrestled with as an atheist to come to Christ, and so it's kind of a 
I'll tell you the fun story and I'll use it as a pretext to inject a lot of apologetic material uh, for you to swallow that pill. Uh, so that that's uh, the, the, the book that's in preparation for next year. Um, but yes, because God has uh, acted so drastically to grab me as an atheist and to make me a Christian, it's obviously a strong impact on my understanding of how God saves people. And they, they kind of discuss that at the end of their video. It's kind of touching. Um, and uh, Stratton agreed that this was important. He said, that makes sense. Uh, I think they're right. So. I don't base my uh, theology primarily on my experience. I base it on scripture and reason, but my experience does highlight uh, this truth that I take to be biblical. And it's the fact that God saves and there's no sinner that's too far gone for God's irresistible grace to be turned on and to save one like that. So one like me, and it gives good, very good grounds for humility about one's salvation. Um, so I, I think that this is one of the merits of Calvinism that you can look at your own salvation and say, look, it's not because I was somehow more spiritual than my brother who was right there and who still doesn't believe. Uh, it's not because I was a good person because I loved God. No, I hated God. It's just that God has decided kindly in his grace to reach out and break out all of my defenses, just change my heart, take out my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh and makes me a Christian. Um, so it gives really good ground to be grateful and to have humility about the fact that you are a Christian and not look down on those who are not. Um, and, and there's a, a bit of a funny anecdote about this uh, this feeling. Um, is uh, a conversation I had with uh, my late friend, uh, Nabil Qureshi. Uh, I don't know if your audience was familiar with Nabil. He's the author of the book, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And uh, he also has a very radical conversion from uh, Islam to Christianity. And uh, one day we were discussing a little bit about our conversion stories. Um, and uh, you know, we, did, we were also discussing a little bit about free will. Um, and, and I asked him the question very mildly. I said, uh, Nabil, don't you think that God tried harder to save you and me than he does most any other believer, uh, any other non-believer? And um, Nabil looked at me and he said, yeah, when I think about that, uh, I want to be a Calvinist for me and an Armenian for everyone else. <laughs> so, so, so we smiled. Um, and obviously, I, I said, you can't really do that. But yes, uh, when it comes to yourself, be amazed that God made a believer out of you. Uh, His grace is pretty amazing. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Well, we have given, um, well, you have given a lot of um, food for thought again this is not going to end the discussion. And um, who knows? Maybe they'll make another three-part video, which we will not be uh, having another, um, you know, uh, response. Uh, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the, I'm gonna do the French thing and, uh, and surrender here. So maybe one day a debate. I mean, Tim, Tim would be interested in a debate uh, when his book comes out, um, things like that. But I mean, who knows? I mean, you've, you've given so much of your time to me, and I do appreciate it. And I know folks who enjoyed this discussion and think it's important to appreciate it as well. That's why I have no problem that this went two hours and fifteen minutes. Uh, uh, that uh, as long as this is, I, I know people can find so many uh, good nuggets in here, even if they disagree with you. There's there's um, awesome clarification on various points. So I do appreciate your time. I appreciate your friendship. Mm -hmm. And um, thank you so much for coming on. I really I really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Eli. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to minimize you. I apologize. <laughs>
He's gone. There we go. Um, well, once again, guys, thank you so much for uh, joining me here at Revealed Apologetics to listen to this very lengthy but uh, meaty discussion on the issue of free will and determinism, Calvinism and, and non-Calvinism and all the related uh, issues. I hope you guys are finding this um, helpful. I do apologize for people who have questions in the live chat that we didn't cover. As you would imagine, there was so much to cover. Um, we would not have covered it all if um, we took questions as well. Um, but that's it for tonight. Um, guys, please tune in. I'm going to be having a couple of uh, good interviews coming up that I mentioned at the beginning. And um, that's all that we've got for you tonight. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.